why I feel perhaps Bitcoin and its properties appeal more to me than to some other people. I was lucky to have strange experiences as a kid, which I feel made the advantages of a money which you can carry in your head or which you can bring with you when you cross a border. Or if the worst happened and you just had to drop everything and go, what could you take with you? Hello there. How are you all doing? Are you having a good week? I am heading out to Miami on Friday. I cannot wait. Cannot wait to get out there and see you. Talk a little bit of Bitcoin and hang out. We've also got our live event there. We've got Lynn Alden, Jeff Snyder, Troy Cross and Harry Suddock for a live WBD podcast recording. If you want to get yourself a ticket, head over to whatbitcoindid.com and click on WBD Live. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Iris Energy, the largest NASDAQ listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I have Freddie New on the show for possibly the poshest WBD ever. Now, Freddie has recently co-founded Bitcoin Policy UK, and he is going to be spearheading this nonprofit trying to educate and evangelize Bitcoin to politicians and policymakers here in the UK. After spending time with David Zell and some of the other people working with the Bitcoin Policy Institute in the US, it has become abundantly clear how important this role is. So I'm very glad someone is finally going to take up this role in the UK and try and make a difference here. So a massive shout out to Freddie and for all of his team for what they're doing. I will definitely be keeping tabs on this and supporting them any way I can. Anyway, in this show, we get into Freddie's background, how he grew up in Zimbabwe and how his family escaped hyperinflation in a very unique way. It's a mad, mad story. I hope you enjoy this. If you have any questions about this or anything else, you know you can drop me an email. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. How many interviews have you done? I haven't done any for about 20 years. Okay, so not on this subject at all? No. How old are you? Uh, 43. You're a year younger than me. Yeah. When are you 44? November. Just after my birthday. It's about a year older. Yeah. We're, we're both 70s babies. Yeah, 78. We got to live through the brilliance of the 18s, 80s as a, as a little kid and then the 90s as a... Thinking we're becoming adults. Pre-internet. I'm indoctrinating my kids. We're working them through Back to the Future. We are starting on Indiana Jones. Oh, my God. Are you recording, by the way? Yeah. Amazing. We'll just carry on. Um, okay, Back to the Future. I've done all three. Yeah, third one, shit. I have a soft spot for all of them. But, you know, third one is, le- is definitely the least good. Yeah, I think... Um, I think when I was a kid, the second one was the best, but it's the one that's aged the worst. Yeah, I think that, well, the sexual mores and the whole Back to the Future thing is not something I noticed at the time. <laughs> but <laughs> going back in time and then getting hit on by your mum is... is a bit weird. Yeah, it's more noticeable as an adult as well. I think the first one's brilliant. Uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark is my brother's favourite film of all time. Awesome. I, did, I was so disappointed at the end of that one because you remember when the Ark opens mm. and it all goes pear-shaped? That scared the shit out of me for the longest time. And then I watched it again with my kids and they just... Didn't care. It's because things have changed. So do you remember when you first saw Alien and the alien comes out the stomach? Yeah, yeah. It was like terrifying. Absolutely. In space. I remember when we went to Thailand, uh, my daughter must have been about eight years old. And she was like, can I watch the Alien film? I was like, no. She was like, please. (laughs) I was like, no. Anyway, she put it on. And I didn't realise. I looked over you and I said, you're watching the Alien film? She said, yeah. And it was literally that big. I said, you need to turn this off. And it bursts out of the stomach and goes across the room. But it looks so shit. And she's cracking up. She thinks it's fucking hilarious. That's heartbreaking. Yeah, I think it's uh, things just aren't, you know, 
cameras have moved on, special effects have moved on. The, the mm. rah, 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 monster isn't as scary anymore. My children watch too much stuff. It's just... Temple of Doom or Raiders of the Lost Ark? I'd probably go Raiders. Really? Um, I'm more I Temple like, of Doom. I like the horror in Temple of Doom. I think the Kali Ma grabbing the guy's heart. Yeah. Um, you know, um, what's his name? Short Stuff? Yes. You know he's the guy who just won the Oscar? I know. Well, I didn't know until I read about it. Yeah, he's, so he's... Uh, are we talking in uh, foreign he's language? such boomers. What was the film I couldn't believe you hadn't seen? And I, made I think it was Back to the Future. I watched Back to the Future. It. Did you yeah, like I it? I watched it on a plane. It was actually pretty good. It was better than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, Back to the Future is a good film. That's the greatest review it's ever had. Back to the Future, better than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> Back to the Future is an incredible film. Um, I think the, the second one as well, because you, you realise they reshot all the pieces of the first film with the second guy back in time, and then that just blows your mind. You think, I assume he was... It, well, it depends on whether you ascribe to the first Terminator's linear theory of time or the second one's loop theory. Maybe that's the long way around. One of the Terminators has got one theory of time and the other one's got another. Oh, hold on. Terminator 1... The first one's the loop theory, because yep. he'd come back, yep. Kyle Reese had come back, and he'd already come back to become his to become John Connor's father. Yes. And then no matter what Skynet did, it was always going to happen in that loop. Yes, I remember now. And then in T2, they suddenly realised, aren't we changing things now while we're talking? You know, and then when they're talking to Miles, the man most directly responsible is Miles Bennett Dyson, you know. Yeah. I love T2. Oh, the, the best film. I loved, I remember, because that came out of time. Uh, have you ever seen the South Park movie? Yes, of a bigger, longer run cut. Yes, yeah. but do you, know, you know the very start they're excited and go to the cinema. I had the same experience with Terminator 2 because oh, I wow. must have been 13. 1991, July 4th it came out. 13, yeah, you get bloody hell. That's weird. Um, so <laughs> I was 13. My favourite band in the world was Guns N' Roses. And so the trailer comes out and they're playing You Could Be Mine from Usual Illusion 2. And there's like explosions, the truck goes off the bridge. And I was like, fuck, we got to go and see this. So me and all my mates, we went down there, we got there. You we're got like, in? No. They were like four <laughs> tickets for Terminator 2. And they're like, how old are you? We're like, 15. Have you got any ID? No. And we couldn't go in. Actually, we might not even got asked for ID. They might have just said no. Because, yeah, that was the days where you didn't really carry ID as a 13-year-old. No. And so, no, I didn't get to go into the cinema and see it. I went to see something really shit instead, like The Little Mermaid. Oh. That we used, oh no, that was a different story. No, we used to have a, a cinema in Bedford. That was it. There was a cinema in Bedford that used to have two screens, and you'd go up. There's a beautiful cinema. You'd go up a set of stairs, and you'd take a right to the screen two and a left to screen one. Screen one was unbelievable. It had two tiers in the cinema, a big amphitheater. Anyway, if you wanted to go and see the adult film, you'd pay for the kids' film and go in. Clever. So Flatliners was on. I was 12, couldn't get in. The Little Mermaid was on, so I paid for The Little Mermaid, but just walked into Flatliners. That was the good old days. Coming. Well, I haven't let my kids watch T2 yet, but that's going to be a special experience. How old are they? Are oh, they 10 and 8. Yeah, yeah. Is 10-year-old a boy? Oh, no, both girls. Okay. They can already do the lines. You know, if I say to them, I look up at the sky and say, there's a storm coming, and they'll turn on and say, I know. <laughs> it's, Have they watched Die Hard? Not yet, but that's on Christmas movie this coming year. So the interesting difference with girls over boys is girls love horror films. So my son and his mates didn't care. They wanted to watch adventure films. My daughter, she's now 13. All they want to watch is horror films. And the worst horror, like literally the that's gross. 
Yeah, so she, there's something they she had, they had them all over for a sleep the other night. She was like, "Can we watch this like Texas Chainsaw Massacre?" I was like, "No, absolutely not." And then they wanted to watch some other film, and I read the description. It was like demonic axe murderer comes back from hell <laughs> to mutilate babysitters, some bullshit. I was like, what the... F That's all they want to watch. It's funny. And my wife said the same thing. When she was young, she absolutely loved the Child's Play films. Oh, yeah. Oh, where is he? He's in the back. Is he? I've got a great story. I've got a fucking brilliant... Do you want to grab him? Yeah. I've got a brilliant Child's, a child's Play story. So my daughter's into horror films. I was like, you need to watch Child's Play. I was like, that was my film as a kid, right? And she watched it and she loved it. And when I was out in... Where was I? I was in Austin. And they had one of those stores which had... Um, all film memorabilia, you know, posters and things yeah. from films and stuff. And I walk past the window, there's a fucking Chucky doll in the window. I'm like, I'm having that. Fuck. Yeah. Well, mate, did you meet last year at um, at Miami 2022, uh, Kyra Gardner? Did, did you bump into her? She, no. was at, she was at the whale party. What? Uh, she, her, her dad did all the special effects of the Chucky films and she's just made a short film. Oh my God, that is horrific. Isn't it horrific? Anyway, so you know, this, <laughs> this, this is the map. Okay, so this is the maddest story, right? So I buy the doll and I bring it back for my daughter and she's like, that's freaky. She loves it but hates it. And so we go through this process of like hiding it in each other's stuff. Like I put it in a school bag, she put it in my bed. And he said like two things. And then about six months after I bought him, he started saying new stuff. Oh. Yeah. You're joking. No. Get off my life. I'll be back. I always come back. So that's what he, he said that. Okay. Didn't say that. And he did that. And you still keep it in your house. <laughs> he never said that. So he never said, hi, I'm Chucky, I want to play. So I was really pissed off about him not saying that. So I was like, that's the one thing you want him to say. Yeah, and about six months in, he started saying new things. And I was like, okay, either one, he, this doll is actually possessed, which is freaky, or two, they've put a time delay on the things he says, which really fucks oh. with you. That would be really funny if they did that. That really fucks with you. Yeah. Sorry, anyway, so your, this is your wife's favourite. She loved these films. She loved those. And, yeah, so the, at, in Miami last year, I met um, this director whose dad had done all the special effects for Chucky, and then she had, I think she actually just, just finally released it, which is great news, because um, she's really talented. Uh, she's released a documentary about growing living with Chucky. You should watch it. It's, so that's out? Yeah, I think it's out, yeah. Oh, yeah. I need to see that. Oh. Um I think, uh, I can't remember the name of the film, but her name's Kyra Gardner. So I recently watched a, um, a documentary about the making of uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. And so they have not aged too well, but the original one is brilliant. The original one's really, really good still, because it's just straight in there. Mm. I know, like horror films now, it's always the same. It's like two blokes, well, essentially, it's usually three guys, two girls. One of the guys is a virgin, so doesn't get to talk to anyone. One of them's a jock. He's yeah, going to die. Yeah, and, and him and his girlfriend always sneak off and have a snog. You know, they're going to shag. Mm. And then there's, like, the nerdy kind of couple who kind of like it. Like, it's literally the same setup every time. Then they go somewhere, and then they're drinking. And it's like, it's yeah. such a formula. But do you remember the original Nightmare on Elm Street? It's fucking terrifying. They literally they, they, start they... with murder straight away. <laughs> like, instant death. And, um, and there was... A, so they struggled to get financing for that film. For a long time, they couldn't get it financed. They eventually did, and it's one of the most successful franchises ever. Have you it's seen it? I have seen it, but so long ago, I can't really remember it. I mean, there long. was like six, and then there was like the follow-up Freddy's Nightmares. I, yeah, the, the last one was not that long ago. Yeah. But, it, you know, it's a boomer kind of film. 
<laughs> Do you have a favorite film? It's probably got to be T2 if I was put on the spot. Oh, really? I've never seen it. You've never seen T2? Yeah. I've never seen Terminator 1 either. Oh, ooh, ooh. Please watch them in the right order. Yeah. Okay. Do it spoiler free. Watch, T- watch the first Terminator and the second one without knowing anything about it. I'll download them and watch them on the plane yeah. back. Do you know what? I don't mind the third one. It's not brilliant, but it's not terrible. I'm, I'm with you, actually. Also, the ending of the third one. Oh, it's again, brilliant. I don't want to spoil it for Daddy. Yeah. That yeah. rescues the hot. Suddenly you think, oh my God, yeah, what that have makes, they done there? Yeah, so it makes it all make sense. Mm. Uh, when he's gone later, uh, we'll do the interpretation. <laughs> I imagine it'll be the same. I even didn't mind the resurrection one. That was okay, the Christian Bale one. I thought that wasn't too bad. I mean, look, I've, I've got to lay my cards on the table. I've, I've never seen a Terminator film I haven't enjoyed, although yeah. if you're being a purist, I, I go for the first two. But Yeah, first two. First one's brilliant. Second one is uniquely brilliant because the effects, are the, I mean, the effects now look shit. But when he got shot and like had a molten chest, it was like, what is, how did they do that? I mean, also the, I mean, the story of the second one is, is so powerful. I, I, I try to base all my parenting around that scene in the desert when Sarah's, you know, watching John with the machine was suddenly so clear. You know, the Terminator would never come home drunk and hit him. It would never, never happen. How old were you when Matrix came out? What year was that? 99? 1999. Eight. Do you remember it coming out and watching it? No, I don't remember it coming out, but I've obviously watched it. Did you watch it quite young and think it was like, yeah. the effects are unbelievable? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that was our ter- that was our Terminator. I've not Matrix watched it back in ages. Sorry, that was it, the effects it, it holds up. I've watched it back a lot. I've watched it again last year, and it's still, still great. Yeah. Did you see the new Matrix? Uh, yeah, I did. It was shit. It's horrifically bad. I haven't seen it yet. I thought the second and third Matrix were both pretty bad as well. They were. They Basically, every time... You wanted them in the Matrix every time they were in that underground place. The it's ship, just yeah. fucking shit. Mm. It really pissed me off. Now, E.T. is my favourite film. I love E.T. <clears throat> that was the first 80s film we, we showed the daughter, my, my daughters. So. That was a weird film. So it, everyone seemed to see it on Pirate before it ever actually came out. Did they? Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. E.T.? So in, in the olden days... Did you buy it off your ice cream? No, or something? in the olden days, what you used to have, my dad will remember this, you used to have a guy who would come around your house with a suitcase, you'd open the suitcase and you'd rent a video from him and you'd come back the next night and get it all. Rent and like a pirated video? No, well, I don't know. Dad, were they pirate? Remember the old guy with the suitcase used to come around? Yeah, it's pirate. So, yeah, but literally, you'd walk in your house with a suitcase, a big suitcase, open it up, and it was like a mini blockbuster, and you'd go, I want that one. <laughs> the original That's, Pirate Bay. Yeah, and I remember one time, we did, we all wanted Stand By Me. Have you ever seen Stand By Me? Uh, is that the... Stephen, Stephen King. Yeah, Stephen King. Yeah. Yeah. Stephen yeah. Have you seen it? I think so. You've got to see it, if you haven't. I'm, so, I'm like you with names, I can't remember films. Uh, so... Um, so we got Stand By Me, we all wanted it, my dad got it, but my dad watched it first... And we all wanted to see it, and he said, no, it's too much swearing, you can't watch it. (laughs) (laughs) They riffed on the the pirate stuff we were just talking about, and did you see that series called White Gold? Yes. That was good. That was good. Yeah. But do you remember one of the characters was pirating E.T. up in the Oh, in the you're office. right, yeah. yeah so there you go. Like, oh, my God, that was true. Yeah, no, it was true. So <laughs> so the weird thing, I remember it, because I remember when it got released, and I was like, hold on, I saw this a year ago. Everyone had seen it pirated. So, Hilarious. Do you know the story of the, was it the E.T. computer game that never got released? Oh, my God, it's in Landfill in Nevada or somewhere, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, so what happened, they made, you should look it up, so... They made an ET game for Atari. It was probably one of the like, most expensive games to make ever. Something stupid like that. When they eventually released it, it was so shit. It was, no, no, when it was going for release, and they were so embarrassed, they basically wouldn't release it and then put it all in a landfill so no one could get it. 
and then someone went and dug it up so you can buy like and it's it's quite rare you can like no gold way. dust more scarce than bitcoin mm. yeah all these films i think uh, danny Hansen, it looks really shit it is really shit. danny Hansen gremlins no but why would i have because it's brilliant. I've seen films perform my time that are brilliant. Yeah, but is that actually a good film? I thought Gremlins it was like a joke. Gremlins is incredible. Sometimes it's nice to go back and, you know, see. It, it's like you give books 20 years to Mature. see if they... Yeah, exactly. Are they going to survive the test of time? There's a website called Ruthless Reviews. I'm trying to work my way through. It's absolutely freaking hilarious reviews of all these bad 80s action films. Um, they, then they have, like, a categorization, you know, entire film described in fewer words than are in this sentence. Um... And then, uh, like, Top Gun is uh, hot, sweaty studs, f- take showers, fly planes. The <laughs> <laughs> new Top Gun was good. Yeah, it was. It was, actually. I, I had a film blog before the podcast. It was called Fuck Off Film. Oh, yeah, I've heard you talk about that. Yeah, it's called Fuck Off Film. And I used to do really offensive film reviews. And then I used to interview the last guy in the credits. Oh, yeah, I listened to one, one of your shows. You spent three quarters of it talking about movies. I'm sorry, we've just done the same thing right <laughs> yeah, now. That'd I'm so sorry. Eric Gakes, yeah, yeah. Oh, was it? yeah, it was in there, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. It was re- it was the, he's the guy who wrote The Seventh, uh, seventh yeah, Properties. Yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed that show, but... Um, There's a lot of films. Well, I like films as well as Bitcoin. So. Well, so so the funny thing is, when we do something like this, what, we, what have we been going, 10 minutes? 15. I'm so sorry. You know you haven't got a time on there. That's the, yeah, we don't need that. Oh, we had it yesterday. Yeah. Huh. Um, when we do stuff like this, you get people who write in, they'll be like, oh my God, that was amazing. I loved it. Do more non-Bitcoin stuff. And then you get half the other people going, fucking hell, I only listen to you for Bitcoin. Cut all this other shit. Or they'll put, put a little timestamp in YouTube. Uh, uh, Bitcoin starts here. Bitcoin starts here. Okay. So maybe we should do like 30 seconds of Bitcoin. Can I thank you for having me on? Of course, um, man. I'm, I'm not sure where you are with your drinking at the moment, but I wanted to... I'm back just, drinking. Are you excellent? Um, just a little thank you for having me on. That oh my God. goes very nicely with barbecue wow. and brisket. Burn ends, blended whiskey, small batch, smooth. Tens- oh wow, that looks cool. That is very. Kind. That's very kind. Thank you. Thank no. Thank you. Um, Hold on, I'm gonna have a smell of this. If you've got some like slow cooked. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's, that tastes like a blend of uh, bourbon and scotch. It is. It's, um, oh, is it? It is. It's quite unusual. I'd not had, uh, given to me by a Norwegian friend originally, and then I loved it and got a lot more. Peated and sherry finished single malt scotch. Oh, interesting. Yeah, but I'm more of a bourbon. Like, I find scotch a bit too harsh, but I do like bourbon. But mm. that's actually... Do try it? I don't like whiskey. I know you don't. But you, have, you always end up having one when we have it. Do you have a bourbon with, like, barbecue? Oh, I like I that do. though. Yeah, that's because that. Uh, oh, it's very peat. That's like yeah, a, like, that's like, an it's like a bit sweeter. Yeah, exactly. I think it gets the sweetness from the Tennessee mash, and then. Do you want to join? Oh yeah, go on. Yeah, go on. We can get glasses if we. Let's do. just get fucking back. What's <laughs> the time? Twelve. <laughs> we we <laughs> could get little glasses. Yeah, I'm back in the uh, not drinking phase. No, we can't start drinking. We can have a little one. <laughs> Shall I get glasses? Yeah, let's get glasses. <clears throat> so we met up in Scotland. I forgot we met up in Scotland. I've got my Bedford hat over there. I bought it from your daughter, actually. Oh, I just thought that was like some of our merch line. No, around. that's mine. Oh, fantastic. I got lots of smiles on the train. Thank you. Yes, you would have come into mm. Bedford. They'll be like, why has he got Bedford out? Yeah. Uh, we're about to win the league. I know. I follow your, your updates. It's pretty exciting. Yeah, we're going to win the league on, I think, on Monday. So we could have... There's winning it and there's mathematically winning it. So three more points, we've won it. 
But there is a scenario where if we lose every game and the other team wins every game and they turn over a 40-goal difference that they okay. can win the league. So that's mathematically. So we can win it on Saturday, kind of, but mathematically on Monday, Easter Monday, at home against our local rivals. So that's going to be a big game. That's oh, shit, game. Danny, you, should you, come. you gave me the date. I'm in Norway. Oh, when do you go? And, um, when are we flying? We're flying on Monday, Monday when or you, Tuesday. When are you back? 16th, I think, you fly back. Oh, God, you're, not, you're going to be away for our live event. Oh, that. Thank you very much. No, thank you. It's your whiskey. What the fuck are we doing drinking whiskey at 12? <laughs> I'm going to get some care emails saying, Pete, what are you doing? You did so well. <laughs> um, right, so we met up in Scotland up at the UK conference, which I think, by the way, they did a brilliant job on. Absolutely loved it. Yeah. The, such a good atmosphere. Yeah. Um, I, like I said, I was in, in Miami last year, and obviously that's, that's Miami. Loved it. But the combination of... Fantastic atmosphere, really great people speaking, really great attendees. I just all came together in Edinburgh. It was a lovely event. It reminded me a little bit of the first um, Bitcoin, uh, well, I can't say Miami because it was in San Francisco, but the first Bitcoin conference, Bitcoin 2019. Uh, that was 2,000 people, 1,900 people, very small, you know, one auditorium um, that probably held 1,000 people. Uh, it was in like an industrial building where you kind of went up through a ramp to uh, to where the um, like exhibitors were and then up another ramp and then there was like a roof terrace with, excuse me, a roof terrace with all the food and street food. And basically you're either watching a talk or hanging out by the food. And there was only mm. two real places, two or three places to go. So everyone kept together. And it was kind of, it was kind of like a hangout, a party festival. And I, I've been blown away by how much they've grown this. And if I was them, I would grow exactly the same because if you have 25,000 people come in, you're going to be making 20 times what they had, you know, revenue rise, and that's amazing. But I did miss that smaller intimate thing. Yeah, it was just so nice to be able to wander around. And I mean, that was where I first met you, you know, yeah. just just saying hi. And I bumped into, I'm, I'm, I'm saying Danny, I met Jeff there as well. I had a chat with him. Couldn't have been nicer. Yeah, lovely guy. He's here next yes. Friday in Bethlehem. Oh, I've timed everything so badly. You have timed it badly. You're missing out on all of it. Hold on. Anetta, we've there's a vid, you're on the video camera. Wave to the podcast. Wave to the podcast. <laughs> uh, Anetta, uh, what is so we're going to be an hour and a half in here. Is it? Did you want to just? What do you want to do? You and I. Okay. I don't know if you're going to edit that out, but that's. Uh, I kind of hope not. <laughs> That's Anetta. It's my uh, Polish wife. Who doesn't live here? <laughs> She's amazing. Uh, yeah. So anyway, great conference, and um, we're going to expand ours next year to a full conference here in Bedford. Fantastic. Yeah, we've secured. We're not going to announce it, but we've secured three excellent. Well, we've got nods from three excellent keynotes. I'll tell you afterwards. That's a terrific idea. It's going to be at the Bedford Corn Exchange. Two probably a two day event with. Um, Hopefully six to seven hundred people if we can do it, if we can put it off. Yeah. So next Friday is a test. Why? Well, just give, give us the dates and I'll, I'll lock it in. We don't know. So what, what I want to do is I want to... This one's really cool because we've got the event on the Friday and then it's the last Bedford home game of the season. So everyone can come to the event and come watch the football. It's just It's got a real nice synergy to it. Yeah, for those people who... Not everyone likes the football thing, but those who do yeah. like the football can do both. But you can spend your Bitcoin at the club, right? You can. So, you can buy a jersey. We're going to have some limited edition ones, Satoshi 21 ones. <laughs> Hopefully, that will say League Champions. Keep your fingers crossed. 
But yes, we're going to do that. But they did a they did a great job. It's such a shame you didn't win the league in twenty twenty one. Yeah, I mean that would have, that would been, have been particularly hard. Um, I mean, firstly, I didn't own the club. Um, and, and was there were there even any games in twenty one? Uh, there was well, so twenty twenty one no, because of COVID. Twenty one, twenty two, yes. Okay. But uh, I guess you could claim it's twenty one. Um, winning the cup in twenty one would have been good. But anyway, anyway. So how long have you been in the UK? So came back from Zim in 1996, so been here for quite a long time now. Okay. And as you can tell from my strong Zimbabwean accent, um, the UK has, has rubbed off on me. You've got that, you've got that uh, soldier accent. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I think so. There's a, well, there's a similarity between the Zimbabwean accent, the clipped vowels, and, uh, and the, like the old-school posh British accent. Yeah. Um, although... Both kinds of accent lead to a lot of mockery. So. <laughs> <laughs> sat, yeah, it's that kind of like public school lieutenant or colonel, whatever is it you become, I don't know. I, yeah, yeah, you know, you, you've got to wear a striped tie at all times. It doesn't matter if you're not wearing any other clothes, as long yeah. as you've got the on-the-striped tie, you're properly attired, <laughs> that kind of stuff. So Zimbabwe in 1996, so is that at the height of the uh, violence and reclaiming of the farms? It actually wasn't too bad back then, no. so... The process of kind of moving farms out of white ownership back into into black Zimbabwean ownership started, my memory's going to be faulty here, started sort of mid-90s. Um, and then it accelerated towards the end of the decade and then got particularly bad, like 98, 99, 2000s. Was that under Mugabe, though? Under Mugabe, yeah. But was inflation still hitting high then? It was pretty bad even when I was a teenager. So, okay. Um, a lot of my pegging to inflation is associated with pocket money. So, like my first two, I've still got the two dollar bill that I got when my first tooth came out. Um, okay. I stuck it in a piggy bank, found it years later. Rather sadly, it now sits on my wall together with a hundred billion dollar bill, which represents about the same value. But I, I keep them together on a on a display. That's um, some pretty pretty heavy inflation there. Pretty pretty horrific. Um, it was running at a between 20 to 50% inflation when I was a teenager. Which is moderately good for Zimbabwe, yeah. but if that hit us, that would be horrendous. 50% inflation is insane. You yeah. lose half your purchasing power in a, in, you know, in, a, in a single year. How old were you? 16 when we left. Okay, but how old were you? So you, when you start, like as, like as a child, I was aware of inflation. I've talked about this on the podcast, on the news. You say, they'll say inflation is a, just above a target of 2%. Or, and, and I always just thought it was like a sign of growth. You know, okay, great, that's their target. They want to see. I never really paid any of attention to it properly until we made this show. And I had no need as a kid to understand it. No. But as a kid, did you naturally understand it because of what was happening? I think from a perspective of knowing your purchasing power is diminishing and as as a kid, you know, you're you're aware that the money you're getting, the money you're earning is diminishing in its ability to purchase things. Yeah. Um so silly example I often use is um deposits for, for bottles. So Zimbabwe always had a, a, a Coke bottle deposit um, system. And you, a Coke used to be $2, but you'd get a dollar back if you took the glass bottle um, back, back to the store. That's a good return. It was good. It was fantastic. And particularly for, you know, for scrappy kids like us. So loads of people would drink these things at our rugby games at the weekend. And they, you, if you stay behind after the match, you'd go around and collect you know, 30, 40 different bottles. Do you know what the modern version of that is? 
No. So at Bedford Rugby Club, they have oh, the reusable yes. cups. Yeah, they do it at Twickenham um, as well. Yeah, and you basically see these kids going around and say, you're done with your cup? And everyone's like, oh, go on then. And so you see these kids walking around with like a tower of cups and like up under their arm going over their shoulder. And you're looking like, that's fucking 30 quid there. And so they take them back and they get a pound for each one and they go around and do it again. These kids are making 40, 50, 60 pounds at a rugby match. Yeah, that's yeah, a great idea. And you can't say no. <laughs> no, I want my pound. Fuck off, 10-year-old. No, the ki- I mean, the kids are clearing it up and they're making some pocket money. Yeah, good for them. But the, it becomes noticeable when the price of the Coke wildly accelerates <clears throat> beyond the price of the deposit. Right. Um, and the, the, that's the kind of thing you notice as a kid. Or the fact that you're, instead of getting $2 for a tooth, that's not really buying it anymore. And you maybe need to be getting $10, $15, $20 right. for a tooth. And it very quickly begins to accelerate out of control. And, I mean, I want Zimbabwe is probably the best working example we have in recent history of, of, of how it accelerates. At, at one point, the government stopped putting out official inflation figures because they, it, they were meaningless. They were, they were so big, you can't even imagine the number. Um, and can I ask what trade your parents were in? Sure. So, um, I mean, you see, from my parents, I lived in various odd places. So my, I was raised by my stepdad and my mum. Okay. So my, my parents separated when I was about four or five years old. Um, and my stepdad's job was, he was with the British Council. Okay. So they're, for anyone who hasn't heard of the British Council, they're like the cultural wing of, of Britain's um, self, self-published abroad. So they organise things like scholarships and um, they, they bring plays and performers over to different, different locations and they set up links between universities and those jurisdictions and jurisdictions back home. Um, and so we were sent off to turn off the Middle East when I was five um, and then, obviously, various things happened there, which we make it into. Uh, and then Zim was my dad's last posting. Um, and after his after his posting finished, we we he retired up there. So uh, would he would he have been paid in pounds or local currency? Interesting. So we actually saw both sides of it in Zim. So he was paid in pounds when he was still employed by the British Council, but he retired in eighty nine, and then he took a bit of time out. And then he began teaching. And it was really noticeable at that point. So up until then, he'd been paid in sterling. And then when he began teaching, he was, he was paid in local currency. And our family's personal financial circumstances could, took a massive nosedive at that point. It actually became quite tough. Because of the inflation? Well, you're paid in local currency. And as we're seeing in the UK at the moment, typically when inflation is going insane, Salaries never keep pace with inflation, mm-hmm. and 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 that's the kind of thing that precipitates the strikes that we see at the moment. Yeah, and you know you will have seen the pronouncements from Andrew Bailey recently talking about um, be very very good if you know you didn't increase your prices or if you didn't um, you didn't ask for a pay rise. Yeah, just stop printing money, Andrew. You fucking prick. Well, did you see the Telegraph or yesterday? Oh my god, that was. Did you see that? <laughs> um, oh, I did. I saw you tweeted. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I took that from Dominic Frisby, hat tip, mate. Uh, yeah, that it's not got nothing to do with them. I thought the Telegraph's headline was quite funny. They were clearly taking the piss. It said, "Rampant inflation has nothing to do with our wanton money printing," or something yeah. like that. Um. So okay, so you were experiencing that. You were father and mother's uh, wealth is eviscerating before their eyes. Yeah, pretty much. At an astonishingly fast pace. Um, and it's difficult to describe, unless you've experienced it, how the loss of you know, 50% of your purchasing power year on year feels. And we you know 
in Zimbabwe, there's, no, there's really no free education to speak of. There are, there are government, some government schools and there are some bigger privately owned schools, but broadly speaking, everyone pays to, to attend school. Yeah. Everyone's earning in some Zim dollars as they were then, being, you know, paying in Zim dollars, and the schools are upping their prices. And obviously, the horrific thing with like a global inflation is that none of the price increases ever keep up with each other. There yeah. are always some that are increasing faster than others. And the ones that increase faster than others tend to be the absolute necessities, you know, food, water, housing, electricity. And then there's this horrendous lag where your income is not keeping pace with your outgoings. And then what choice do you have other than to strike? Yeah, I mean, this is the highest inflation I've lived through as an ad. I don't know if it, it was high when I was a kid, but it's the highest I've lived through. And I'm, yeah. I'm noticing things. So whatever they claim the inflation is, I think they say about 10%. About 10. I think depending on what it is, it's between, between 10 and 20%. So we've seen a massive increase in our energy prices. Um, I've just bought a bar, which I close on today. Yeah. And Congratulations. Thank you. And everybody is raising their prices. Um, and uh, yeah, various other things with you know, property, insurance, my insurance has gone up. I'm seeing it all. But at the same time, we're not raising our prices on the podcast. So, you know, we're not raising our drinks in the bar because we know everyone's being hit. But at the same time, you have to rethink your staff. They have to be paid. So everything you don't want to go goes up and everything you want to go up goes up can't. And so that's my experience at 10 to 20%. And it's annoying. It's survivable. You rethink, rethink, or reshuffle. If you took that to 50%, I actually don't know. I can't envisage the consequences, especially if that was year after year. Mm. I cannot imagine what that's like. It tends to accelerate as well. Yeah. And it, there are also all kinds of other second-order consequences which may, may be unseen at the beginning of the process. And one of the most obvious is that people stop saving. So if, you're, if you know that your money is going to be worth half this time next year as what it's worth today, why the hell would you put it in your bank? Spend it. But even at 10% inflation... I'm looking at the money in my bank and thinking, well, I should do something. With I think it. it's six years. So at 10% inflation, doesn't the maths work? It's five or six years, you've lost half your purchasing power. Um, well, because it's compounded, though. Yeah, exactly. It's so compounded. I think it would, I, I, would have, I would have estimated six years, you've lost it all. I don't know. I'd have to do the maths. It, 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 it's, it's, oh, a, it's, it's a weird a bit of maths. Yeah, no, it's an inverse, isn't yeah, it? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, you, you're probably right, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm even looking at anything I have, which is cash now, I'm thinking I... I should spend it or put it somewhere, but then does that does that compound inflation because you're spending more? Well, again, I guess is the root problem of all of this. Why the hell should you have to spend your time thinking about this instead of doing something productive with your time? Yeah. It, it means everyone has to be a financial engineer, and that's a gigantic waste of your time, talents, and brain power. And people shouldn't have to do that kind of stuff. And so, is was this was this happening prior to Mugabe, or can you blame all of this on Mugabe? It was a lot of it was to do with what happened to the economy. So Zimbabwe. I mean, I have to say, cards on the table. I loved living in Zimbabwe. It was a wonderful place to grow up. It had the most fantastic climate in the world. Harare is one of the only cities, definitely one of the only capital cities, I think, where you don't need uh, heating or air conditioning. Huh. Lovely climate, um, and the education system in Zim was terrific. You know, it was a, genuinely, hand on heart, it was a wonderful place to grow up. 
And how integrated was it between the blacks and the whites? For my generation, pretty good. So we were too young to remember um, much segregation. And actually, our school had first black pupils attend in the 60s. Okay. So there were, there'd been two or three different generations. Um, like I was at school with a boy called Douglas Chingoka, and his, his, his uncle, I think it was Peter Chingoka, had been one of the first black kids at St. George's. But would, would it have been all levels of prosperity mixing, or was it uh, the more fortunate, wealthy blacks mixing with the the historic white population? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, so independence in Zim happened in 1980. Yeah. Um, just missed it, actually. April, April the 4th, I think it was. So. Okay. Oh, no, April the 8th. Were you um, born there? Uh, no, I, so I was born in London. Okay. Um, and then moved, moved to Syria when I was five, and then on to Zim when I was eight. Okay. Um, the so our class was pretty interesting. We were I was minority white, so the majority of the majority of my my school was was black. We had a reasonably big Asian community as well, um, but we'd all grown up in a like a free Zimbabwe that was independent. And to this day, you know, we, we've still got WhatsApp groups going with my my class from Zim, and um, there's very good, I think, you know, rate certainly mixing in terms of races, but. The economic point you raise is completely valid. You know, there's there's a huge stratification in terms of, sorry, it's fine. in terms of um, where you sit in the wealth stratum, um, and there was no real middle class to speak of previously in Zimbabwe. So a, a, a lot of Western society, you've got like a three stratum of, of societies. You've got largely divided in terms of wealth. In Zim and a lot of other countries of that nature, you, you tend to have sort of two divides. You have an elite and you, then you have a, a larger group of people at the bottom. Right. Um, and it's very hard to move between those. It's, in fact, it's harder to move, obviously, between between the lower levels and the elite um, than it is to move between the classes in the UK. Difficult though that can be as well. Right. Do you know about this, the redistribution of the farms? I mean, I've yeah, I've heard about it. I don't know in detail, though. Yeah, I mean, you, you should probably explain it better than I, than I would, but my question with regards to that is uh like i'm I'm fully aware that the the program to uh, redistribute the farms was chaotic badly thought through dangerous led to death murder of farmers uh fear and people fleeing the country and then a destruction of the productivity of the farms because they were handed over to people who didn't know how to operate a farm like I'm i'm aware of a lot of that please add context where i've got it wrong but was there any validity to the idea that there should be something done to redistribute opportunity? I think almost everyone you speak to would say, yes, that should have happened because these were by and large farms which had been had been taken from, in some cases, ancestral lands. Um, and people have been forcibly moved off their territory. Okay. Not necessarily by the farmers who were operating the farms at the time, but maybe by their ancestors or by, by, you know, by people 100 years ago. So the, the question of distribution of land is, is very, very difficult to, to talk about because I think most people would agree with the, the aims and goals, which was to try and give people back their land, which had been forcibly taken from them. By but forcibly taking it from current owners. It could have been done in a more thoughtful and and better way. Um, for example, your, your, your point about about giving the farms to people. So a lot of the farms in Zimbabwe were absolutely gigantic. Some of them was the size of small counties in the UK. Wow, okay. And to manage a farm of that size, you, you, you need an army of people, an enormous amount of infrastructure to manage a farm that big. 
if at independence people had started to be trained how to manage those farms, and if there had been some form of compulsory purchase of those farms at market value, and then when those farms were purchased, you know, black farmers had been put in, who knew what they were doing, and a lot of the farms were split up, and it's you lose some of the economy of scale if you uh-huh. split up a gigantic tobacco farm and try and run it as 80,000 small tobacco farms. It doesn't really work. So I think the spirit of land redistribution was right in so far as this land was unlawfully taken in many cases from people whose land ancestral land it was. But the way in which it happened was unfortunately chaotic and, and ultimately led to a lot, a lot of the destruction of the the agricultural prosperity of Zimbabwe, which itself precipitated a lot of the inflation. Yeah. And was it, um, where did the idea come from? Was was it directly from Mugabe and was it kind of populist idea or was or was there an ongoing generational debate regarding this? It's, it's old, it's an old idea. So there were, okay. there were a couple of different liberation struggles in Zimbabwe. They, they were called uh, the Chimarengas, uh, which roughly translates as liberation war. The one that most people will be familiar with is the war that was fought against Ian Smith's um, Rhodesian army. Uh, there was a guerrilla war in the late 70s and very early 80s. Um, and to be honest, a lot of it did boil down to land. You know, black Zimbabweans were, were moved off land. They were concentrated into... It was never as bad as apartheid in South Africa, which okay. is much more horrific. Um, but black Zimbabweans were treated as second-class citizens and that... That's awful. It shouldn't have happened. This show is brought to you by Ledger. Now, Ledger is the world leader in Bitcoin security, and it's the best way to own and secure your private keys. If you're still holding Bitcoin on an exchange or with a custodian, it might be the time to take your security more seriously. Remember, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Now, Ledger hardware wallets paired with the Ledger Live app are the easiest and safest way to start managing your own private keys. You can send and sign your Bitcoin transaction with full transparency in the Ledger Live app. And honestly, look, it could not be easier. I have been a Ledger user since 2017. I love their products. and I'm still using the same hardware device I bought back then. Now, if you want to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up, we have Iris Energy. Now, Iris Energy is the largest NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. Their strategy is to target markets with low-cost, excess renewable energy, and they build out their own highly efficient Bitcoin data centers. They are led by a seasoned management team with a track record of success across renewables, infrastructure, and digital assets. Now, Danny and I met the team recently in Canada and were super impressed with their values, which align with us, so they are a great fit for what Bitcoin did and you, the listeners. Now, we are going to be working with the Iris Energy team on everything we do from podcasts to films and live events, and they are even sponsoring my football team, Rail Bedford. I'm really, really happy to be working with such a forward-thinking and sustainable Bitcoin company. But if you want to find out more about them, please head over to irisenergy.co, which is I-R-I-S-E-N-E-R-G-Y.co. Also, today we have Ledin. From savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of holding today without selling their Bitcoin. Ledin has a robust risk management strategy which always prioritizes safeguarding clients' assets with no DeFi yield farming. And Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. 
They also are dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. To find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. How is Zimbabwe now? Oh, what do you know? I st- I'm still in touch with a lot of people there and my friends up here. The inflation is going nuts again. Okay. Not as bad as it was. Um, I think the rate is 150%. At least it was last time I checked. I mean, that's still horrific. I mean, it's still, it's still insane. Yeah. Um, and they went through various periods of um, striking zeros off the notes. Yeah. Um, the US dollar was used, as in many uh, developing nations, as currency. And then the US dollar was arbitrarily banned. The government banned people from putting prices up. <laughs> yeah. The tried and tested means of controlling inflation. Which never works. It absolutely never works. Yeah, which... Uh, it's down to 92%. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> Manageable. Yeah, I mean, well, look, we've seen loose uh, calls for uh, price controls in the US. I think I saw Elizabeth Warren talking about uh, price gouging with their... I mean, it's always the same. It's the problem is caused by the fuckos within government and then their ideas are the ones which uh, exacerbate the problems, which yes. is it just it's a typical uh, story that's repeatedly told country to country to mm-hmm. country. Uh, but it's really interesting to meet someone who's lived through it. When I went out to Venezuela a few years ago, what was super interesting to me is everything is priced in the Bolivar and you have to use the Bolivar. But everyone wanted the dollar. And there mm-hmm. were actually there were five currencies. There was uh, people using the Bolivar because they had to people wanting the dollar because they knew it was stable. Uh, some people were using the Colombian peso because they wanted that because it the border nation. Okay. Uh, you had that, the Petro, that uh, ridiculous, oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, it was a ridiculous <laughs> cryptocurrency that didn't work and people Does just... It still exist? I don't know, but all I met one lady had it and she just reclaimed the money from it. And mm. then you had Bitcoin, of course, and then the, obviously a plethora of other shit coins. But uh, the, people were choosing what they wanted to use, but they had to use the Bolivar. But what they naturally knew is I wanted the dollar. Mm. I wanted the dollar. I've never, there's never been a time in the UK where people have been like, oh, I need an alternative to the pound because no. the pound, the inflation is high. Yeah, some people say they need Bitcoin, but Bitcoin is like a weird thing where you've got to get all the timing right and you've got to be patient. It's not like an instant. It's not like, oh, I know inflation is going to hit me every single week, so I want the dollar. You can buy Bitcoin to avoid pound inflation and be down the following week. So it's, it's, it's a weird alternative. But I've also seen it in Cambodia. Um, when I went out to Cambodia, it was similar. In the cities, people wanted the dollar. Mm-hmm. So I've experienced that scenario and I've seen yeah. it. What, when you were there, were people trying to get alternative currencies? Or was it harder? It hadn't got to the point where it was a, a kind of an existential need. So when, when we were in Zim, we were faced with problems like uh, capital controls, getting money out of your country. It's, it's a fairly obvious point, but there's not a huge demand for Zimbabwe dollars outside of Zimbabwe. Yeah. And there, there wasn't even in the, in the 1990s. So one of the great things the US obviously has is that there's gigantic demand for US dollars all over yeah. the world, as you've just described. Um, and that enables them to export some of their inflation because they've artificially increased the demand for US dollars in multiple different jurisdictions <coughs> like Zimbabwe who, who need dollars. Um, so if you want to leave Zimbabwe, it's, it's very hard now. And even when we left, it was extremely difficult to do so. You mean difficult to leave in terms of what you take with you? What you, what you take with you. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, so actually, the way we, the way we did leave, um, I think I, I mentioned to Neil. Danny told me this morning. <laughs> yes. I've got a picture of the car in there. Oh, you got to show me that. Well, tell the story. I'll tell the story. Yeah. So we, like, like I said, my, so my dad had been in the British Council, retired out there. We bought a little chicken farm, which we ran for a few years. We had we had five or six acres, um, orchard, bunch of chickens. My dad was teaching, and then he eventually retired from teaching as well. Um, he wrote a book randomly. That was how I met Mugabe actually when I, when I was fifteen. My uh, you met Mugabe? Yeah, yeah. Um, I always thought it was but, unusual that he decided to be only the second person to have a moustache like in that design. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I always thought it was unusual as a as a tyrant uh, to decide. Actually, I'm. I, of all the moustaches I'm going to choose, I'm going to match Hitler. Hmm. The thing is, he was he was a popular president, and I mean, remember. Again, a, a lot of Zimbabweans will feel conflicted about Mugabe. He, the guy was a war hero, and he won his country back from the British. Yeah, and I think that under that underlies a lot of his a lot of the policies that came later. Yeah, you know, he he fought against the oppressor and he won, and that carried him an enormous length of time. That that enabled him to stay in power, even though the economy was collapsing and. There was some opposition, and he eventually began to repress that opposition quite violently. But power corrupts, my friend. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's uh, to this day I don't really personally I don't really know what to think about Mugabe because you know I grew up I grew up in a country that was wealthy and prosperous in in no small part through you know what he and Zanu had done, but you know then Zimbabwe is a is suffering now. It's it's very sad to be honest. It's, yeah, I, I, but I. It's that really tricky thing. This is where I I look at uh, Venezuela, El Salvador, with guard because I've obviously met Bukele on yeah. a few occasions. I've interviewed him twice. How many dictators have we met between us? How many dictators <laughs> have we met between us? We've met a few. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I haven't met Rishi Sunak, but anyway, it's um, not a dictator yet. Yeah, he's a his conservative government is displaying. Uh, I've met Sunak. Have you? Yeah. I, th- I think he's fucking terrible. <laughs> he's very small, is he? But I'm quite small. I think everyone's small compared to you. I don't know. I Anyone listening? Danny. <laughs> uh, Freddie's shoulders are about the the breadth of this table. <laughs> um, uh, Who could deadlift more, me or George from CoinDesk? Ooh, I, I would. My money would be on you. George, George is about Danny's build, but a bit shorter. But he, mm. yeah. Curious. He shifts some tin though. Yeah, but look at the side. This guy's arms are like my legs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I've obviously met him, and in preparation for the interviews, I've done my research on Venezuela, the history of corruption within the government, you know, presidents fleeing and hiding out in Nicaragua or arrested or accidentally dying, who all pilfered the country and. Uh, and uh, essentially never given El Salvador a chance. And the thing about Bukele is he's certainly uh, showing dic- like the the traits of a dictator, but potentially a bedev- benevolent dictator, which if only time will tell and he will be judged in time, but at the moment he mm. is changing the fortunes of that country, he's made it significantly safer. He's brought tourism into countries, boosted the economy. I mean, he has changed the fortunes of El Salvador. There are questions with regards to human rights, with regards to the rounding up of gang members and uh, imprisoning people without fair trial, etc., which Alex Gladstein has highlighted. Mm. But he's changed the fortunes of that country. Um, 
the constitution says only one term. They found ways around that to have a second term. People but, do. And which, by the way, I think he needs a second term. I mean, one that isn't enough to do the job he's doing and he could be replaced by somebody who would screw up everything he's done. Uh, I think the test of time will be when times turn bad and people turn on him. How does he react? Does mm. he accept it and step down? Does he arrest journalists? Does he imprison opposition? Does he go down that route that many previous dictators tyrants have gone down or does he accept it i mean I, I i like the guy i hold him with high regard and i i wish the best for him in that country but i'm also very guarded because history has told us how this plays out again and again yeah that's completely true yeah i mean personally i just i don't, I don't feel as i can judge robert mugabe you know i my, my memories and feelings towards zimbabwe are colored by the very happy upbringing and childhood I had there. Um, and I know that his popularity was in no small part to begin with because of what he'd done. I mean, the guy was a political prisoner for quite a long time. Um, and I, I, don't feel, I don't feel as I, I have to withhold judgment, you know. I, I love growing up there. I'm, I know that terrible things have happened happened since it's a very difficult situation. But Nelson Mandela was also imprisoned, political mm, prisoner, yeah, yeah, exactly. fought for South Africa and died a global hero somebody who stood up for fairness, democracy, you know, human rights, and was a, you know, was, a, was somebody, everyone, I don't, I, I, I've never heard a post-release criticism of him. Of course, I've heard criticism of him as a freedom fighter or he's accused of being a terrorist. He was, yeah. yeah. Um, but from his release, uh, I've never heard anyone say anything bad about him. Mugabe's, kind of gone the opposite direction in that, yes, he... yeah, And I don't know the history, you know better than me, but I think he destroyed that economy and he has to take responsibility for that. Or he yeah. had to, I mean, he's dead now, so... Yeah. And to be honest, the facts, the facts speak for themselves. Whether you attribute blame to a particular person or to a particular policy, the economy did collapse, the, the currency did hyperinflate, and as Danny said, 90% inflation is not, not brilliant. So, um, and it... The country's gone through waves and waves of economic collapse, not just single, but, you know, over a couple of decades now. Was his party ZANU-PF? ZANU-PF, yeah. yeah. Is, are they still the ruling party? They're still, yeah, they, they, there's, there are a few. I mean, Morgan Tsvangirai was, um, he was head of the MDC, the Movement for Democratic yeah. Change. Uh, and he, he made some strides towards, um, towards having a second party, but, you know, it's... It's always a complicated place. Right. Um, Have you been back? The clothes, I went back for a wedding to the the board, northern border of Zambia. Okay. Um, so sadly, I've never been back to Harare, but I have friends there who are talking about, random example, the uh, municipal water supply is, is now so poor that people are sinking boreholes in their gardens, um, which is, you know, it wasn't like that when I was there. So you may have a reason to go back. I mean, I'd love to go back, particularly with my kids, so they can see where I grew up and why I have a weird accent. And... <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to go. Uh, it's a wonderful country. I mean, seriously, go, go to Huangi, to like, the National Park, go to Victoria Falls, the I'm, Eastern Highlands. I've not actually been to Africa. Uh, oh. th we were planning to go out there and make films uh, in April... Was it April 20 or April 19? No, April 2020. April yeah. 20. And obviously all the borders closed. And oh. 
Yeah, well, the potential for gridless, for example, to mm. start hydro mining in... I mean, one of my Zimbabwe, we have a sort of Zimbabwean Bitcoin group and I keep on banging on about a tap. You know, uh, the Kariba Dam? Yeah, biggest, well, I mean, I know the name. One of the biggest dams in the world. So the Lake Kariba is the size of Wales mm-hmm. and the hydropower from that dam powers a gigantic amount of Zimbabwe's electricity. It's just made for sticking a Bitcoin mine in there and foreign, that instant foreign currency for the country. And the eastern highlands are full of little rivers. All of those could be dammed. They could have a small gridless mining unit stuck on them. Well, we're planning to go out there. Um, so our next films should be out in the next few days covering mining out in the US. And we want to follow that by looking at what gridless is doing in Kenya. So uh, if I go, I'll let you know. If you oh, want to come you? out and you want to meet me in Zimbabwe, I'm, you know, I'd love to go That'd and see That'd be it. epic. We well, should bring we should, your kids. Yeah, we should yeah. do that. I don't know if I'll bring mine. but uh, <laughs> We need to get into the car. Oh, yeah, the car. Yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry. That was a long story. To yeah, me. yeah, so it was a long intro. Danny's like, show me the fucking car. <laughs> I'm so sorry, I am rambling a lot. No, no, it's good. Okay. Um, so, so start at the beginning. We, we, were, we were planning to come back to the UK for, you know, for us to finish school and go to university and so on. I'm the eldest of four kids. Um, and we sold our, sold our house. And then you're, you're left with this problem. I've got all, this, all these Zim dollars, which is depreciating like 40, 50% a year. And how the fuck do I get them out of the country? I'm allowed to swear. Yeah, so yeah. Fucking... Okay, okay, thank you. I mean, I get written to all the time. Like, <laughs> can you start swearing? I'm listening to this in the car with my Georgian. I'm like, yeah, fuck, sorry. Sorry, but if I swear in a posh voice, it doesn't really... <laughs> it's barely a swear word. My dad really. is. What was it? Um, uh, Stephen Fry, I think he said. He said, why are all words relating to making love considered swear words, <laughs> but words relating to murder and death aren't? That's a good point. Hmm. Yeah. He's fucking right. That's one for another <laughs> podcast. Yeah, look, I, I just, I have a foul mouth. So do I. My father's learned how bad it is recently. Um, I, I, my children put a swear jar at home and I'm repeatedly penalised. <laughs> is the jar full? It's brimming over. Yeah, my children swear themselves. I tell them not to. But they occasionally, a little one slips out here or there. Oh, mine, mine just think it's so funny. Sorry, anyway, Danny. The car, <laughs> yeah, the car. So, Get to the um, fucking car, man. Yeah, so, so one thing that a lot of people in Zim do is they buy, they buy a car and then you drive it over the border and... All of you, literally all of your wealth is sitting in that that car. So, so, so there's no facility to send Zimbabwe dollars to the UK at that time. You could exchange the exchange rate was terrible, and it was getting worse every day. So, was there a black market exchange rate and like a real exchange rate? Yeah, as in most developing yeah. nations, and it's also very hard to get your bank in the UK to to give you pounds for Zim dollars because the bank in the UK, they like we say, it. there's no market yeah. for Zimbabwe dollars. Um, so, a there may be no market, and b the exchange rate is deteriorating day by day. So we bought a Rolls-Royce, uh, Rolls-Royce Silver Shadow, um, and then we drove over the border. We um, packed all of our, our stuff into a shipping container and then said goodbye and legged it. How far did you take the car? Two and a half thousand miles, roughly. To? Uh, so we drove from Harare down through Zimbabwe, through Mashvingo, Great Zimbabwe, which is near where Anita Posh was. Oh, she's when, amazing. Well, I, was, I pinged her some sats. She was standing at Great Zimbabwe, um, which is, if if anyone hasn't uh, hasn't hasn't Googled, it is a um, sort of it dates back to the Middle Ages. And it's a gigantic um, set of stone fortifications and buildings down in the south of the country. Um, yeah, she was on Twitter. I said, "I'm I'm in Zimbabwe," and I said, "Oh fucking hell!" Stick an invoice in. So she did, and I pinged her some sats. She's an absolute Bitcoin hero. She's brilliant, isn't yeah. she? I love her. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, we drove down through the whole of Zim, crossed the Limpopo River at the south, Rudyard Kipling's great, great, green, greasy Limpopo. 
if you know you just no, your stories. Didn't you make cakes? I may, may have been a remote remote cousin. <laughs> so this is this is old, even older than boomer stuff. Definitely, sorry. <laughs> um, um, and then we drove down through the whole of South Africa over a space of about two weeks. Um, absolutely incredible journey through the Drakensberg Mountains, through um, through the Garden Route, the Boer War battlefields, Zulu battlefields, Isandlwana, Rourke's Drift. Uh, you may have seen the Michael Caine film, Zulu. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. So been there. Please tell me you've seen that. You have not <laughs> seen Zulu. No. We're watching that tonight. Okay. Um, do you, do you never know? I've heard of it. You've not heard of Zulu? No. I've got some... I promise you, it's incredible. All right, we'll watch it it's, tonight. I, I, it's, it, is, it is good fun. I think it's Michael Caine's best film. Wow. Yeah. I have some Zulu spears that were supposedly picked up from one of the battlefields. My, my great-grandmother had been born in South Africa... Um, and had collected various weapons and bits and pieces. Wow. Um, and then we ended up in Cape Town with a car, drive the car into a container, and then we sailed from Cape Town all the way around Africa and then back, uh, arrived, and then we arrived in, in Tilbury, the most random, I mean, it was such a weird end of the journey. It was cold and grey and rainy and utterly fucking bizarre because they unloaded our car, opened the container... My dad walked into the container and then reverses out and then we drive off. And no one stamped our passports. There's no record of us coming into the country. <laughs> so were they right-hand drives? Uh, this, this was in, in, exported. So I've got a random... Sorry, some of you the people listening. That, that's the car in Barberton. That's the town where my... Uh, that's absolute classic Rolls Royce. <laughs> that's very cool. We'll have to show it to the camera. Uh, that's an absolute classic. It's funny, I... I I'm going to imagine, tell me if I'm wrong, that car journey is one of your best childhood memories. Oh, without a doubt. It was just astonishing. I mean... We did a similar one. We went on holiday to Yugoslavia pre-Balkans War. I was must have been... God. What have I been, five? Do you remember the year? So we had a Yugoslavian family moving next door to us. I've told this on the podcast. And my mum made a real effort to make them feel welcome like help them learn English and settle in. And uh, and after a year or so, they moved back to Yugoslavia and they invited us out. And I, I still don't know why we didn't fly. Did, did they not fly there? Did, oh, I remember. Uh, my dad had to take over. A, in Yugoslavia, you can't get good things like cameras and TVs. It was all absolute shit. And so uh, the guy who, um, the, the father, wanted some of this stuff. So we drove and it was a two-day drive through. I can't even remember where. We probably went through. France, Belgium, Czechoslovakia, Germany. We went through all these countries, drove all the way to Yugoslavia. It took 48 hours. It was a two-day drive. And it's one of my happiest... I, I don't remember much from being five, but I remember this... So many little bits. I remember the sausages that were disgusting that we ate in Germany. What, what year were you doing this? Well, would have been, so I would have been about five, so about 83, 84. Okay, because we did a similar drive when we went to Syria, but that would have been... 80, I would have missed you by a year. But we would have, we would have been on the same on similar the route. Yeah. yeah. And we drove all the way there. I, re- I remember. I can't remember much, hardly anything from being five, but I remember that. I remember the bunk beds we stayed in. I remember in the car because back then <laughs> there were no phones or anything. Mm. We're all in the back of a. Was it the Mazda? The white Mazda? Yeah, back of a white well, Mazda. There's no, there's no headrest. Uh, but... <laughs> was it the Renault? It was the Renault. 
the Renault 18. You, you, you slept on the parcel shelf. Yeah, so I'd sleep on the parcel shelf. My brother would sleep on the back seat and my sister would sleep like in the footwell. Oh, brilliant. And uh, my equivalent of a iPad was an Etch-a-Sketch. <laughs> so I'd be playing with an Etch-a-Sketch. And I remember so many, I remember getting to Belgrade and we went out and we got watermelon. I remember us going to the coast and we needed matches and me and their son went out and went into every tent stealing. We had like an arm full of matches. I remember so much of that and I can't remember much else in my childhood, but that's <laughs> such distinct memories. Yeah, very much so. And my brother was the same age when we did this drive and I think this is one of his earliest memories. He was, yeah. he was five when we, we left. So you got into the UK and sold the Rolls Royce and rebuilt the life? Yeah, although I um, I did notice it took my dad quite a long time to sell the car. Um, <laughs> so, did he not want to sell it? I, I suspect not. He absolutely fucking loved it. I mean, it was a gorgeous machine. Yeah. Um, eventually, under pressure, he he, he bowed down and uh, the car was sadly sold. And but that was that, that, that was our, that represented what our life in Zimbabwe in, in that vehicle. And what was it like trying to resettle in the UK? pretty hard i mean i still feel like i've been here for a long time now and i still feel like a bit of an alien yeah um you know i spent the majority of my childhood overseas with people who had very different values very different obsessions uh i mean not being mean about the uk but it is a very easy place in some ways to live compared to some of the places where i grew up and Again, I don't want—I don't want to judge anyone for for having the benefit of that ease. Um, I, actually, slight, slight segue. I don't know if you've read the like the SAS Survival Guide to Surviving in Different Jurisdictions. Because no, I mean we're, we're pretty safe around here in Bedford. Well, yeah, that's <laughs> kind of the point of the story. So it goes through various different environments in which to survive, and then the bits on the bit on basically the UK and Western Europe is incredibly dismissive. It says. You know, survival is easy, full stop. And then it goes on to more interesting places. <laughs> um, God, we skipped over Syria as well. Uh, yeah. Um, we'll come back to settlers. Come, what, what, come what, was, what was Syria like? Because was it very obviously very different from it is now? Very different. I mean, possibly the easiest way to describe Syria is it, it's so old. It's been inhabited for such a long time and there is so much ancient stuff there. It is it is mind-boggling on the one hand. On the other, I feel desperately sad because I'm aware that a lot of that may have been destroyed in, in mm. the wars. I find, I, find it, I find it difficult to talk about Syria because it was, I was there when I was very young and I'm a, it's, it's probably the place I've lived where the worst things have happened. And I like this, the, my friends at school, for example, I, I don't even know if a lot of them are still alive. Yeah. I was so young, I don't know a lot of their surnames. I can remember their first name. I can remember Y.L., Sinan, Catherine Haddock. Well, I got her surname. Roger. How old were you? I was nearly seven when we left. Okay, so quite young. Quite young. But I didn't, didn't really get to say goodbye to any of these people. because we, we left. I, I don't know, if, is it worth going into a bit of how we left or why, why it happened so abruptly? Is it pertinent? I think it's pertinent. So I've, I've raised, I raised Syrian Zimbabwe because I think they, they have an interesting segue into, into Bitcoin for two reasons. So Zimbabwe, I think, is a useful illustration of how difficult capital controls can be and how extraordinarily difficult it is for a lot of people who live in the world to move money from one country to another. And part of the reason for the long and elaborate story about the Rolls Royce is that those capital controls and lack of demand for the Zimbabwe dollar <coughs> result in you having to take quite outlandish steps 
to move money from one country to another. That is your Bitcoin in 19, what, 90? Uh, 96. 96, that's your 1996 Bitcoin. Yeah. So today I could cross a border naked with that in my head. Yeah. But back then that wasn't possible. Yeah. Syria's in, I, I raise Syria not, not necessarily to talk about the country or my experiences there, but the experience of leaving it. Yeah. So, so very briefly to recap, um, in sort of late, mid, mid to late 86, there was um, something called the Hindawi Affair happened. It was an international incident when a guy called Hindawi attempted to bomb an aircraft by putting some explosives into his, his pregnant girlfriend's luggage. Um, thankfully, he was caught. Um, the, the bomb was defused. No one died, thank God. Um, but the result of that uh, meant that Syria broke off diplomatic relations with the UK and the UK likewise. So um, the embassy knew that they were going to have to get out. They, they were all being evacuated. We didn't know that we were included within within the expulsion order because, we, like I said at the beginning, we weren't quite connected to the embassy. Um, but I can still remember an official from the embassy coming to our house. We, we lived on the ground floor of this, um, this the block of flats called the Kuatli Buildings in Damascus. Um, and this guy comes and knocks on the door and my mum my and my dad are both immensely agitated and, and they come in and they just start grabbing packing cases. You know, we, we, we've got a lot, we, we'd moved there two years before packing cases come out of the cupboards and they just start going for it. And uh, we were given 48 hours notice to get out of the country. Holy shit. To leave everything. And you know, this, was, this was my home at the time. I, I could barely remember London. Uh, yeah, and so my parents just, they stayed up for 48 hours. They packed the whole house. Um, there were soldiers in the garden, Syrian, uh, Syrian army soldiers. And then... We were escorted to the border by um, by the by the Syrian army and Turkish border, Tartus. Okay. It's a port on the coast. Okay, and uh, stuck on a ferry and told to fuck off. Jesus, and that was it. Forty eight hours, start to finish, boom, done. Wow. So I I've raised that as I, 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 I think a lot of the a lot of the ideas behind our chat are are sort of angling towards why I feel perhaps Bitcoin and its properties appeal more to me than to some other people that my, my contemporaries working in the city of London or in finance or in law. I, I was lucky to have strange experiences as a kid, which I feel made the advantages of a money which you can carry in your head or which you can bring with you when you cross a border. Or if you if the worst happened and you just had to drop everything and go, what could you take with you? Yeah. But I think that's what it boils down to for me. So we've traveled a lot making this show and the hardest place to explain Bitcoin to is here in Bedford with my friends. <laughs> like it's 100%. just, it's so difficult. Yeah. I try and explain to them. I've told them for years about inflation that's coming. I've told them about risks of banks. I've told them everything, but you almost have to go through more horrific experiences, more a, a, a genuine crisis to understand it, and, and no, it, I just can't get them to, to consider it. When I was in Argentina, or I was there, I was in Uruguay, but talking to Argentinians, and you explained to them, they're like, "Yeah, I get that. Mm, yeah, I get 100%. that. Yeah, yeah. Well, we we used to keep our, we bought a house for cash. We used to keep our, we never kept money in the bank, or 
most places in South America, it's very easy. I, I, you know, people like Anita will tell you in Africa, it's very easy. When I was at the border with Venezuela and Colombia and Cucuta, very easy. It's very easy to explain these people who've gone through crisis, uh, suffered forfeiture, suffered hyperinflation. Like they naturally get it. It's almost like I'm waiting for a crisis. I'm, I can sit there and explain to people everything I've learned about the banks, central banks, high, well, high inflation, CBDCs. I, I, it's like I'm fishing without bait. Mm. I feel like I've got the best bait in the world and like nobody's taken the line. It's the difference between show and tell. Yeah. If someone has experienced something and you can show, or you can show them a story... That's so much more powerful than lecturing them about it. And to be honest, I've spent a lot of time, I think, poorly lecturing people about why they should read about Bitcoin. I, I don't even tell people to buy it. So just go and, go and read about it. Yeah. I mean, on the Rail Bedford website now, we said, I've written an article called Why You Should Not Buy Bitcoin. And the whole article is, is about why you should learn about it. Oh, I, e- Even if you I don't want to buy it. it. Just learn about it because it's going to arm you and better prepare you for the world we live in. It's, apart from anything else, it's absolutely fucking mind-blowing yeah the more i mean fucking hell i think a few years ago i thought i knew so much about it and then yeah the more it's like a you know socratic dialectic the more i the more i read about it the more i realize how ignorant i am yeah and you know the more more bitcoin humbles you doesn't it the, the, yeah and <laughs> the i think more. i think the more i learn the more i realize how insidious uh central bank control over money is how insidious our governments are the thing I think you get to you get to like peer through the veil a little bit more or behind the veil a little bit more, and I think it becomes it's it's like in the Matrix when when you can disseminate everything's the, going to green numbers. Yeah, you can, and the green numbers you start to see them. You can you can just see stuff. So I, you know, where historically I would have I, I mentioned the other day I went to the shop to get a coffee in the morning when those Costa crappy machine ones. And there's a guy buying three newspapers. He's buying the Times. He got a Times, a Mirror. Was it a Start? He got he got he got a broadsheet. Yeah, he got a highbrow <laughs> uh, uh, broadsheet. He bought himself the lowbrow Daily Mail and then a tabloid. And I just thought you're going to read these and accept it. And assume you're going to move on. Like, I mean, I'm making an assumption here, but but I I just watch the news. I'll see Rishi Sunak or whoever, and I just. I know the bullshit that's being said to us now. I just see it. It's mm. and and that's because of Bitcoin. I think I can see it. Oh, completely. I mean, something as simple as I, I think in some ways it's better to start with thinking about money rather than thinking about Bitcoin. Um, if you and starting with something as simple as house prices. So there's an argument to be made to say that you can draw a direct line from the unaffordability of housing straight to the bank's ability to create new money without any cost to themselves. And if you break it down to small logical pieces, it, I, I think it can flow quite quite logically. Yeah. So you know, obviously you, you can start with you know, housing is housing is expensive. True. How do most people buy houses? They and get a mortgage. Mortgage exactly. Um, if no one could get a mortgage, what do you think would happen to house prices? They would fall. Well, they would fall exactly. Um, and that's a good thing. So when a bank, when you go to a bank and you ask for a mortgage, where does it where does it get that money? Well, you would ideally it would be lending based on depositors, but it's but we know uh, that's lev- not true. The, oh, well, it's partially true. It's leveraged depositor income. Did you 
Did you read the um, the Bank of England's paper on stablecoins a couple of years ago? No. There's a really interesting paragraph in that at the beginning. Does it say we're fucking liars and we're going to fuck you? No, they're quite on. They're quite honest. That's what, but that would have been honest. <laughs> <laughs> they, they they talk about the nature of money. It's if if you can't put it up, I'll find it for you. It's, it was their it was their consultation paper on stablecoins. I think it was it's in paragraph one, and they talk about the two kinds of money that exist in in Britain at the moment, and this is true for most developed economies. The the first, the first kind of money is it's a liability of the central bank. Mm-hmm. So they're not lying. They're, they're not trying to hide this. They're quite open. The pound in your hand is a liability of the central bank. And I think the one thing I'd like to try and move away from is the concept of fiat money towards liability money. Yeah, I like that. Versus commodity money, which is Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, every single pound note, no, 10 pound note that you hold is a liability of the central bank. It fucking says it on it. I promise to pay the bearer on demand the sum of £10. Even worse than that, the next paragraph, they go on and they, t- they say, um, the second kind of money is created by commercial banks when they make loans. And you ha- hang on. What? I-, I thought commercial banks lent out deposits. That yeah. other people- no, it's liabilities all the way down. Every single piece of sterling that exists is someone else's liability. And once you get your head around that you suddenly realise the attraction of a money that doesn't have any counterparty risk, yep. that you can access 24-7, that no one can confiscate from you if you use it properly and if you custody it properly. So, I mean, coming back to the mortgage point, these fucking banks are creating money out of thin air at the moment you sign your mortgage paper, and they are creating as much money as a normal person will earn in their entire lifetime because you may only pay your mortgage off just before you retire. And... The second order effects of that are astonishing. That money is pumped into the system. I mean, like I said, you could draw a direct line, unaffordability of housing, straight to the bank's ability to create that money. It's, it, I mean, fucking hell, if you're putting a hundred grand deposit down and you're buying a million pound house, 900,000 new pounds have been created by that bank and pumped into the system at no cost. Would you like a top up? I think we should probably have a top up. I feel. Do you know what the weird thing is? You finished that glass and I don't think you've stopped talking and I haven't seen you pick it up. <laughs> So there's some kind of voodoo going on there. Have you seen him pick that glass up and drink it? I'm not. Um, yeah. I quite like that. It's really nice. Oh, you, I'm, I'm pleased. It's, it's yeah. the first whiskey I've liked. Oh, good. Well, it's, this, it's the weird blend of the rye and the... Um, well, you might be a Scotch guy then. I constantly have imposter syndrome around Bitcoiners who drink whiskey. Do you? <laughs> uh, Danny will have a, an old-fashioned or maybe... I actually don't mind that. That's all right. Oh, I love an old-fashioned. Yeah. That's like uh, me having a latte when you have a black coffee. Yeah. Yeah. Black coffee maxi. Okay. The counterpoint and counterargument to that is credit, the opportunity to access credit can drive productivity. In that credit uh, makes things available to people starting businesses, uh, uh, buying a home, being able to afford a home. So that is the counterpoint to that is that a lot of credit has created productivity and when credit dries up, economies stall. We've had a dry up of credit right now with interest rates so high it's hard to... Now, look, there's a good side to that because these shitty Silicon Valley startups who raise an enormous amount of money uh, and end up IPOing before they've really made any money. I mean, look at Twitter at the moment. It's worth $44 billion. It's still not profitable. Has it ever been profitable? Well, I, Twitter's... I think their, the acquisition debt there was about $19 billion. So... I got. I don't know what the coupon on that interest is, but they're going to need to make a gigantic amount of money 
every single day in order to service that debt. Isn't it a billion a year to service this? Is that right? Is wow. that the interest on the debt? It's either to service the loan or the interest on the debt, which is why he's pushing so hard this Twitter. To monetize it. Yeah, which I've fallen for. Yeah, a billion dollars a year. Yeah, a billion dollars a year. That's crazy. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so the, the the good side is that yes, that's true. I mean, I, yeah. have you read Varoufakis's book uh, Letters to My Daughter? No, let me. Keep um, on he's he's really interesting in credit. So he's got quite a nice story there where he he talks about creditors pulling tomorrow's profits to be able to spend today in order to grow your business. Yeah, and to be honest, I, I think it's undeniable that there are benefits in that. Yep. I bring up house prices because I think there that that is a particular sector where the increase in prices has been disproportionate to the benefit to the general population. Yeah, and and one of the areas has been people with fabulous amounts of wealth knowing that they can't park it in the bank because they're not going to get the interest. So they might as well, as well buy houses, which houses are another form of Bitcoin in some ways. They're a store of value. Uh, they always tend to go up in price. We're not building any new land apart from in the South China Sea, you know. And so they are a good investment, and they are a solid investment. And I mean, I've thought of—I don't have a second house, but I've thought of buying a second house. Is that a place to put money? Mm. And so you have this mass ownership of properties by landlords yeah. now. Well, it's the financialization of everything that we talked yeah. about earlier. Yeah. If your money is continually losing value by you sitting in the bank, you need to find other things to do with it. Yeah. What's the quote? When the the Jeff Booth one? Oh, when uh, money isn't scarce, everything else is. Everything else is paraphrasing. Yeah. Paraphrasing, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and so, I, I mean, I think to me, it's. I, I mean, I remember growing up. There's a there was an advert on um, YouTube for one of the old building societies, and it said seven point four percent interest on your deposits. So whatever, so you can earn a, earn a high interest. So there's an incentive to save, mm. which was obviously a good thing. And then there was a cost to borrow. And so whilst we've hit these 4 or 5% interest rates, which have scared the shit out of people, especially people who are going off fixed rate mortgages to variable rates, trying to renegotiate them, actually, historically, these, this is normal to have a, a cost yeah. of capital, which we should have. And I think it goes back to Stephen Lubka, doesn't it, where Stephen Lubka talks about 0% zero, zero interest rates. They distort the market. There should yeah. be a cost of capital. Yes. But it's, it's the about- rate of change that's the problem. It's it's the rate of well, there's two problems. The rate of change out of nor percent was you know was really hard and it's it it's fucked a lot of things up. But going to zero percent interest rates was putting off the inevitable uh, market correction that's required. Yeah. It's a bit of a toss up, isn't it? Would would the pain of, of not dropping interest rates during those periods of you know general global crisis and calamity have been worse than the pain of the unwind. Both scenarios, I believe, are painful. Yeah. I'm of the view that we probably should have taken that first pain and not dropped to zero. Boom and bust. Mm. It's, it's, it's an old economic... It's economics 101. I studied boom and bust cycles. Ray Dalio talks about boom and bust cycles. Mm. You have a boom, you have credit expansion, then you have the correction, you have credit contraction. And look, you know... There are good times and there are bad times, but I think, and this is me from my uneducated point of view, I'd much rather Lynn Alden explain this, but from my simple point of view is what I've seen is as we kick this can down the road, which I think is a, a, a problem of the political cycle, uh, nobody wants to lead us into a recession, but as we've kicked the can down the road, what, essentially what we do is we we widen the wealth gap uh, 
to unacceptable mm. levels. Between those who have assets and those who don't. It, exactly. I mean, and returning to the liability point earlier, once you, once you understand and acknowledge that all fiat money is essentially a liability either of your commercial bank or of your government, then the next conclusion is, um, is that reliance on the liability is, is all fine and well until, until you begin to lose faith in the person on whom you're relying or the person who, who, who owes you that, that obligation. Um, commercial banking is an example. You, you deposit £100 into Barclays. Yeah. You don't own that money anymore. What you own is a claim on that money against Barclays. So but you are a creditor of Barclays in respect to that £100. And we've seen very clearly over the last few months um, that as soon as lots of people suddenly realise that Barclays may not be good for that 100 quid anymore, out it comes. Up, up to £80,000 you're protected. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But do you really want to go through the ball ache of waiting for the government to reimburse you? No, if I can get my money out, I'm getting my money out. Yeah. That's how bank runs happen, as we all know. This show is brought to you by BitCasino. Now, BitCasino was established in 2013 and is the world's first licensed Bitcoin casino. It is trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, and not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they offer fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. BitCasino also has over 2,800 games and tournaments to try out. And with 24-7 live chat support, you can always get the help you need. To find out more, please head over to bitcasino.io, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award. That is bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Next up today, we have Unchained. Now, events at exchanges and traditional banks over the last year have been an important reminder of how critical it is to take control of your Bitcoin keys. Trusting an exchange exposes you to hacks, compromised passwords, frozen funds, or even worse, being caught up in someone else's insolvency. But taking control of your Bitcoin keys can also be daunting, and that's why my friends at Unchained offer a concierge onboarding, a personalized service to get you up and running. You get a one-on-one video call with an expert who will help you set up your cold storage vault, which can take the stress from you even if you've never secured your Bitcoin before. They will ship you the required devices walk you through the setup, and even help you with withdrawals from exchanges. And after your setup, Unchained continues to provide you with regular support to help you get comfortable with controlling your own keys. Now, if you've been putting this off for a while, if you've been putting off taking control of your Bitcoin wealth, then Unchained's concierge onboarding is a simple way to get started, sooner rather than later. Now, you can book your onboarding call today at unchained.com forward slash what Bitcoin did, and at the checkout, you will get a $50 off with the promo code what Bitcoin did. That is unchained.com, which is U N C H A I N E D.com forward slash what Bitcoin did. Also, today we have Wasabi, who I am using to keep my Bitcoin private. Now, Wasabi is the easiest way to send and receive Bitcoin privately. And even for non technical people like me, it is effortless and provides privacy by default. Now, with Wasabi, there is no minimum amount, so you can get started coin joining straight away. And Wasabi users make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay and Trezor users, and BTC Pay server users can make payments in CoinJoin, which saves on fees and is a privacy improvement. Also, Wasabi have just dropped a new feature. Now, Trezor Suite users can make CoinJoins directly on the hardware wallet, which is obviously very cool. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Well, I... I don't know if you've prepared for it, but I have. Like I'm a I'm a financial prepper now. Oh. Uh, I have uh, 
Do you have eight different banks? Or with- no, but I have a couple of banks. Uh, but I also have pockets of cash distributed around the country. Random locations, like really weird and random locations. This is interesting. If I never, I mean, obviously, I would never say that on a podcast, <laughs> but... Um, I hope these these locations are secure. Oh, hidden. no, no. First, one, they're secure locations. Is there a treasure map? So, no. <laughs> well, actually, my brother has a treasure map. But, but, but secondly, they're not amounts so large that it's worth coming around with a $5 wrench. I might as well buy the $5 wrench off you for 500 It's just small amounts of pockets, but if at any, any time I need, I know I can go and get it. So if the bank closes down and I need cash, I'm like, there's that location. There's a £1,000 there. That's you know, it's, it's, it's a two-hour drive, but I have to go and do it. So there's no point, like... Why not just have Bitcoin? No, I have Bitcoin as well. But why, why do you need the cash? Because I want every scenario. What scenario would there be that you need cash, not Bitcoin? Uh, going to the shops and buying a loaf of bread. But with, this is like financial Armageddon prepping. No, you, but if you're no. Uh, bank, cash, bank, bank, bank failure. Bank failure. <clears throat> a bank failure. I can't get any money out of the bank that day. Yeah. Uh, truckers, I do something in the line of our business, that means I get my bank account switched off. And that happened. People mm-hmm. had their bank account switched mm-hmm. off and they couldn't pay their mortgage. Or they couldn't get money out to buy groceries. Yeah. You know, I think it's a... Well, I, think it, I think it's a far-out risk that's getting nearer. You're talking about tail risk? Yeah. So, I'm, I'm obsessed with tail risk. Yeah, so I've it, got... I've got pla- I, I'm just increasing my plans for every single one. Yeah, I have six months of food in my basement and a generator. Okay, so you're, you're an actual prepper. <laughs> Tin pineapple. The, you got, uh, you've got a shotgun license yet? I haven't got a shotgun license. I have, I have some... Well, you know... I have I, some I should, explosives. I, I haven't... I have, just, just, just for the record, and speaking as a lawyer, I have no explosives on my property. <laughs> Do you have a Rolls Royce, just in case? Sadly, no. Um, no, but t- tail risk is an interesting thing to explore, and I, I think it appeals to a lot of people who understand the value in Bitcoin. So, uh, like we were saying about the, about the UK, why is it so hard to explain to people in the UK why Bitcoin is useful? And I think in in some respects, and Danny Scott is good on this as well, isn't he? Yeah, uh, great. Coin, coin, coin. We we live in a country where we don't in many cases, need Bitcoin yet. I'm, I'm being being completely honest, and this is a person who loves and, and obsesses about Bitcoin much more than my wife is happy with. Um, we live in a country where, by and large, you can tap your card in a point-of-sale terminal, and that works. And broadly speaking, technologies are adopted when and if they become useful. And for many people in the world, Bitcoin already is useful. You know, it's a store of wealth. Your currency may be evaporating at 70% a year, in Lebanon, you can mine Bitcoin and you have access to a global financial system that is permissionless and you can just participate in. In Zimbabwe, I mean, they're running out of physical currency now. So if you if you have a, you don't even need a smartphone, you can use a feature phone. Bitcoin, Akazi, you have kids who are finally being able to you know, get paid for services and not have the other people, the other eight people who live in their room stealing the money from them. Well, this to those is, people, it's obvious. This is what particularly pisses me off about someone like Elizabeth Warren with an anti-crypto army, which, by the way, most Bitcoiners are in an anti-crypto army. But it, what particularly pisses me off is she doesn't understand the second-order effects of what she's doing. No. She thinks of, uh, in the USA, that she wants, for whatever reason, I don't know her intentions, but for whatever reason, she's taken it uh, upon herself to attack Bitcoin. But she doesn't understand that this is a lifeline for people in 
living under authoritarian regimes or activists around the world, people living under hyperinflation, the, the people living in Lebanon can mine Bitcoin and buy their groceries. She, she doesn't understand how important at all this is. No, but that's why I care. And I mean, I feel like, I, I judge myself a lot about this. I, I feel as though my, my, my wife says I come on far too aggressively about how brilliant Bitcoin is. Um, so I think I need, in some ways I need to dial back and you know, start talking about the money instead or about the benefits and about how exciting it is. I mean, my, my pinned tweet is at Elizabeth Warren. I, I don't, my, uh, uh, my film coming out in the next week is called Dear Elizabeth. Is it the, the Texas mining one? Yeah, we've uh, delayed it by about a week. <laughs> I and need to watch this. It, and it ends with a letter I've written to her. Oh, brilliant. It should be out when this show drops. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Okay, so, so uh, we've spent a long time getting to this point, but the, the real point is uh, we've taken more of an, an interest in the UK recently in that we've neglected it. You know, we made it, we, we're a media company that makes a Bitcoin podcast that cares about Bitcoin, that spends most of our time in the US because that's where a lot of the activity is. And in doing so, we've neglected it. The the I don't mean this uh, as a flex, but it's, you know, we have one of the largest shows, maybe the largest dedicated to the subject, and when and it's and it's in Bedford. It's hmm. from Bedford, UK, and we've neglected the UK. So we've been trying to build a relationship with Danny and Molly at Coin Corner. And we've been trying to build a relationship with British people. We're starting to put events on here. You know, we've got the football club. We're trying to do more here. But I feel like we're so behind the curve here in the UK. I fear legislation more than here because at least in the US there are there are some people, senators in Congress, that that are doing something to fight and protect Bitcoiners there. And I feel like we've got lobbying for uh, lobbying associations, the uh, Bitcoin Policy Institute, um, Coin Center, Coin Center, mm-hmm. who are working to 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 actually educate people on what this is and why it's important. And I'm fully aware that we're not doing anything here. Well, I'm not. You're doing more than you think. I, I mean, know. I, I was fanboying at the beginning about how much I love the show. But we, <laughs> could, but, but we could do, like, I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm giving you a layup to say. Shall I, yes. shall I give a bit of, I, I probably should have started at the beginning of the show with a bit of background, but if, you've, if you haven't, you know, stopped listening to the show at this point. Um, the poshest show we've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> Am I really the poshest person you've had on the You show? just sound posh and you're making me speak posher. And I, my proper accent is a proper Bedford accent, mate. <laughs> but, um, but, uh, I think the Americans have been like, these people are so posh. <laughs> so civilised. British people are like, who are these fucking twats? <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm in so two-second potted history. So I'm, I'm a lawyer by training. I spent a long time working in M&A in the city, um, doing, started off in private equity, and then during the financial crisis moved into uh, special situations. Um, so a lot of insolvency and restructuring work. And then segued out of that, um, spent nearly a year looking after my kids while my wife was starting up a business. Um, and then I, w- I wanted to work in startups and in fintech. Um, and I'd been, been interested in Bitcoin for a long time. I started reading about it in 2013, started node running in 2015. Um, and I've been working, I, I, I don't have a huge public presence. I'm generally quite a private person and had been doing a lot in the background. Um, as I said, I imagine a lot of Bitcoiners do. Uh, and then I landed a job at a fintech firm called Curve, and we helped to put together their first cryptocurrency product. We were so we were sponsoring Miami last year. Yeah. Um, you may have seen our. We, we had a tent out in the um, the food court. Yeah. So, I, but I know another curve. Hmm. Are there multiple curves? Yeah. yeah there's a is DeFi it, curve. Is there a gaming curve? 
there maybe it's um so I, I, an old client of mine from my old days in advertising a guy called Stuart dinsey works for a curve okay but i think uh, they're gaming they're, yeah if they're gaming they're, they're, so um curve the curve i work for that i was saying to danny earlier they're basically a, a digital wallet with a physical card on top okay and the idea is that you can provision whichever um whichever of your digital cards you want to act as the payment vehicle behind uh, behind your curve card and the reason we were in Miami last year was because we'd um, we'd come up with a, a crypto cashback. Unfortunately, I was not able to sway opinion at Curve that it should be a Bitcoin cashback. So, you know, God damn it! Uh, I mean, mate, uh, uh, the the amount of I, I basically had to get our CEO to wear a muzzle, not for have, to have him talk about Solana at um... <laughs> 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 exactly. Um, anyway, so the basic principle, the, the selling point for Bitcoin is was you could earn cash back on your underlying cards and also you could earn bitcoin cash back on your curve card and that would just be provisioned into your into your wallet and that we've just enabled withdrawal to self custody as well so that's available now you have a card you can get bitcoin cash back yeah wow i want that card i'll send you i'll send you a referral link yeah please do oh awesome well, um I'll, I'll show you after the show well i mean i i've got a ba amex one and my ba points they're fucking so shit i've got so many of them there's a limit how many you can use they're always on shitty flights at shitty times that you don't want never in the school holidays never in the school holidays yeah they're just a waste of fucking time like mm. i've got them there they're just doing nothing for me Hmm. Give me, give me sats. I'll, I'll show you off the show. All right, cool. Um, anyway, sorry, Tom. I, I appreciate it. I've been burbling on. How long it. have we been going? We have been going for an hour and a half. Bloody hell! I'm so sorry. I, I'll no, try, and, try and be quick. We haven't even talked about any of the law yet. I know. I, no, you know, then we'll get me a real hard on once I once I start talking <laughs> about the law. Um, anyway, uh, so I've been working at Curve for a while, and then as part of my work with Curve, I started to respond to a lot of the government consultations on on cryptocurrency. So. I, um, I submitted evidence to the FCA crypto sprint, which they held last year, to HM Treasury, to HMRC on taxation of crypto assets, and to a big piece of evidence to Parliament. Um, so I'd begun to do some legal advocacy. And the, the, my main aim there is that I want to help politicians. Politicians, by and large, do not understand cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, least of all. The current legislation, which we can talk about in a minute, I know you've got a few a few of the bills that are currently going going through Parliament. A lot of those are not necessarily bad pieces of legislation, but I think some of them exhibit a lack of understanding of how the how Bitcoin works at a protocol level, in particular. Um, and once once you begin to understand the protocol level, you you understand that the legislation is perhaps not appropriate for what they're trying to regulate. So what I want to try and do is to ensure that politicians have the tools and education available to them to make good regulation. You know, I'm relatively libertarian, but I'm also conscious that regulation is coming. And if it's inevitable, I want it to be good regulation. And mm -hmm. I want it to be made by people who are informed and know what they're talking about. Yeah. Um, so the pin tweet I mentioned earlier to Elizabeth Warren, that was a game I played with my two daughters. We, have you done that? We, we sat down with a coin. I put a zero on one side and a one on the other, and we flipped it 256 times. Have you ever done this? No. It's absolutely fucking mind-blowing. You generate a binary number, 256 digits long, write that down, feed it into a piece of software that converts it into hexadecimals. You take that hexadecimal number, you feed it into another piece of software, and it spits out a private key. And then you put that private key into Blue Wallet, and then there's a fucking wallet there. And it just, 
Danny, process Danny, of, Danny, what's he talking about? <laughs> <laughs> the process of doing that literally blew my fucking mind. And what the one thing I couldn't get my head around was before we'd written down that number, did it exist? Did it exist in the universe of potential numbers that exist within the search space of the Bitcoin you know, elliptical curve cryptography? Or did we create that number? So what I did with my girls, okay, I've got a wallet. So I put some sats in there mm -hmm. and then I deleted the wallet. And I said to the kids, you've got to recreate the process of what we just did. You've got the binary string. If you can, treasure, Christmas treasure hunt, if you can complete that process, then you get the Bitcoin. That's amazing. That is very, very, very cool. They did it. Wow. I t I, I, all I gave them was the websites they needed to go to to put the, to put the numbers in. Seriously, it's just so much fun. Yeah, we got, well, I'm going to have to do this. Have you ever read um, the book about the Winklevoss twins? The Bitcoin billionaires? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I the love that. The whole part where they're trying to come up with their private keys and the rolling of the dice. With this air-gapped computer. <laughs> air-gapped computer. I, I wasn't air-gapped, I'm sorry. Trying to avoid um, any scenario where there could be camera. Like, yeah. thinking that whole thing through I, I blew my mind. It's. I mean, it's like I was saying earlier, the more I learn about Bitcoin, the more ignorant I realise I am. I mean, I got the idea from from Gigi, okay, yeah. one of one of his, and I think this gets into the impossibility of so the, the legal reason for that story is the impossibility of banning Bitcoin. So when when people say, "Oh, you know, the government are going to ban it," so they'll I said, make it hard. They will make it. They can make it as hard as they like. But at the same time, if I can sit at my room and generate a private key by flipping a coin. And then once I've generated that private key, I can transact with anyone in the world freely without any KYC. I mean... It's unstoppable. It's unstoppable. Mm. And I think once politicians realise it's unstoppable, then you need to... When you sit down and have a sensible conversation, this technology has been invented. It's out in the wild. You cannot shut it down. Let us see how we can use it to our advantage rather than to fight a fruitless fight against something you cannot win. Yeah. Well, it's also in this time where we've, post-Brexit, we have this opportunity to lead across Europe and you occasionally see these little flirtations with it from within government. Yeah, we want to be mm. leaders in fintech or crypto and, and then nothing ever happens. I just think <laughs> fucking idiots are missing opportunities. Well, do, you want, do you want to talk a little bit about some of the legislation that's actually going through Parliament? Please do. I mean, I, I've not looked at my notes once. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, please control me if I burble no, or if I... Everything is fine. Okay. You carry on. Um, so I think, that, so the note, the note, the note that I had, like, so the, a lot of this started with the Khalifa review, which was a, a review commissioned uh, in order to look into fintech opportunities in the UK. And all that did was to say that we should, we should probably come up with some laws to regulate this stuff. Fine. Um, the two big pieces that we're working on at the moment... Um, are a response to the future financial services um, consultation and a response to CBDCs. Um, and by we, perhaps I should go into the big reveal, yeah. which is that um, following the Bitcoin Collective Conference in Edinburgh, and have to shout out to Jim Duffy and to and to Jordan Walker here. Yeah, I love both of them. Walker, brilliant guys. Jordan's coming down on Friday. Is he? Yeah. Oh, tell him I say hi. Yeah. Jordan's a great guy. They're both great guys. They were fantastic. Yeah. So... Um, I've been doing a lot of advocacy and a lot of response to consultations, writing a lot of pieces. Um, and then I reached out to Jordan after the conference. I wrote a piece for the Bitcoin Collective. 
Uh, and then Jordan got a bunch of us up to London to talk about maybe putting together a, a UK equivalent to the, the Bitcoin Policy Institute in Which the US. Which is desperately needed. We have something pretty much ready to go. Okay. And I think by the time this show airs, we should have a minimum viable product out there. How do we help? How can we help? What can we do to support you? Hopefully by having an ongoing relationship with us, which that's would be done. fantastic. It, well, that's already done. We're friends, so that, consider that done. Brilliant. But how else can we help? Um, well, shall I, shall I talk through a few of our yeah, initiatives? Yeah, please do. Some of our initiatives are, are academic and procedural in nature. So we're splitting our, our work, and by, by our, I'm talking about the loose collective of people that have come together after initial chats with Jordan and Jim. So um, the, the, the committee at the moment consists of uh, some lawyers, tax experts, environmentalists, some miners. We're in touch with the guys at Skilling Mining, who are great. The Irish guys. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I love them. Uh, and a podcast host from Canada, who's, who's a Brit. So we've got a wide variety of, of different skill sets, and we've split our, our projected activities into sort of three buckets. One is policy, one is mining environment, and one is education and next gen. So we want to try and focus on each of those three areas. Um, we're all volunteers, none of us are taking a salary, so we're doing this in, in our spare time. And we're going to try and keep the running costs of the company as low as, as, low as possible. Um, and we're setting the company up as a not-for-profit, so any money the company does generate will be kept within the company to fund its activities. Um, so taking them one by one, the policy side of things, the first pieces of work we're doing are responding to government consultations. And that's in the, in the arena of what I was just talking about, making sure that decision makers and regulators have got good information about Bitcoin and about how it, how it is differentiated from other centralized cryptocurrencies uh, and why it should be considered in, in, a, in a different way. Um, secondly, on mining and environment, this kind of ties into how we might look to fund the enterprise and potentially somewhere where we might look to you for help. So, like we were saying earlier, I think it's, it's always more, more powerful to show someone something than to tell someone something. So, we want to try and fund the company by uh, initially setting up uh, some geyser funding, not, for, not, not asking for donations as such, but we want to try and establish several different small proof-of-concept mines in different locations. We've, Are you aware of how much wind energy is curtailed here? I had a meeting last week with someone who works on the wind farm just off Brighton, and he was talking about curtailment and how much of it he, he says he has to, he's, he's sitting there and, and it just shut up. It's, the, it's producing far too much for the grid. It's literal millions of pounds. It, I mean, I th I'm sure I saw something before, like it's like Christmas Eve or something, and New Year's Eve was like nine million pounds. I was like, what the fuck? I'll buy that from you. Yeah. I'll get some ASICs. <laughs> Cheap ASICs. Do you, know, do you know how much it's going to cost to operate this? So we, we're doing some costs. So may, maybe starting at the beginning. So yeah. we, we're in talks at the moment with a, a landowner who has some hydropower on his land. And he's interested in putting some ASICs on that, on that, uh, that hydropower. So Great. our first geezer fund is going to be, we're going to look to try and purchase two small ASICs and go to get into a uh, effectively a power sharing arrangement with him, so he he can in some instances sell to the grid, or he can mine Bitcoin with hydropower. When you say two two machines, as a proof of, proof of concept, we're going to start with start with the two machines, but there's there's capability to build that out. Depending, okay. you know, if we raise enough money, we would put more machines in there. Um, secondly, we want to investigate proof of concepts on landfill methane, uh, curtailment of wind and solar, and potentially socially useful 
uses for the waste heat generated by the machines. But this is a commercial business. These this be, should be a commercial business. The reason why we're doing this is partly because of listening to David Zell and, yeah. and how much time he has to spend fundraising. Yeah. So our activities are not going to cost a huge amount of money, but they will require some time. And to the extent we want to pay fellows of the Institute yeah, yeah. to write academic papers for us, we will need a source of income. Have you spoken to Adam Wright? Vespin? Yeah. Not yet, but I would love to. Well, we can introduce you, right? Yep. Um, I wonder if uh, Iris can help with this at all. Possibly. You know, our new sponsor, Iris. Iris Energy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I wonder if I, I'll have a chat with them and see if there's any interest in that. That would be amazing. Yeah. Um, I just okay. had a look and it was £250 million pounds of wind, turning wind farms off last year. £250 million. million. 15. 215. Oh, Jesus. I mean, I, I want to get ahead of you. I want to front run you and just say it's a commercial <laughs> enterprise. Listen, well, we want to have... But you know what will happen if you approach the, some of these people, you're going to say, can I buy that energy from you? I will, you know, you'll just dump it. I'll buy it from you. I don't know. 10 pence on the pound, whatever. I'll give you money for it that you're just, you're dumping. They'll, they'll probably be like, really? Okay, great. Yeah, I just want to put a data center there. Yeah, fine. What's in that? Bitcoin money. Oh, no. No. It, well, you know, we're early days. Yeah. And we, we need to map this out properly and put it into a business plan. The the intention for the, for the small minds is twofold. One, we want to generate a... Like I say, we don't need a huge amount of income to run to run the company, but we want to be able to pay fellows to for, the, for their academic work. We want to host their academic work on websites, and the company will have you know, a few thousands of running costs per year. So with the mines, if we can do two things, firstly, we can generate so a small amount of income to, to fund, to fund our, our advocacy. Secondly, I want to have a number of sites in the country that we can bring politicians to. So getting towards actual lobbying. I yep. met, met Lisa Cameron in Edinburgh. I love her. She's got her heart in the right place. She is focused, uh, for those who don't know, she is the head of the all-party parliamentary group in the UK who are looking at cryptocurrency. As you would expect, Bitcoin is lumped in with all other cryptocurrencies as well. Of course. Of course. I, I really struggle not to be mean about this, but I remember it took me a long, 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 long time to understand why all other cryptocurrencies are pointless. And that's where they are at the moment. Yeah. Didn't they just have some event in London? I think they did, yes. And they were covering CBDCs there, I think in a positive light. Well, you know... I, I, I think Lisa Cameron was criticised. Interesting. I think so. Well, you know, I'm not surprised the governments like CBDCs. It's yeah. a brilliant excuse for surveillance, control and confiscation. Yeah. Why, why would a government not like that? Yeah, I love it. It's perfect. It's brilliant. This actually highlights one of the problems we have. It's it's You have to tread very carefully the line of advocacy because a lot of what, if, if, if you take what Bitcoin is to its logical end point, it is, a, it, it is effectively not something that the issuer of a government currency would like. Yeah, but like uh, my headspace isn't in that the end game is the end of government currency. That's that's not my head. No, I agree. Because I, I, I'm still in a place where I th see that you will have sovereign currencies that sit alongside Bitcoin as a commodity currency, hmm. and uh, but you will still have local currencies or some currencies adopting the dollar that will give you the dif the difference between certain economies. It will be your fluid cash. Um, but I think what it does is it makes central banks more responsible and it makes governments more responsible. Yeah, I think it, I think it's a lens into the mistakes they've been making, 
And yeah. I mean, certainly in the midterm anyway, maybe a long time I'm wrong, but in the I mean, midterm. No, no, I agree with you. And then, you know, we can use existing examples to support that view. Gold exists. Yeah. Gold is perfectly legal for you to hold as a British citizen, and you can hold gold and use pounds. It's, yeah, but, but, but pounds are more liquid, easy. You, it's, it's hard to use gold as a currency, like a day-to-day transactional currency. Bitcoin is, okay, <laughs> arguably not as easy as digital pounds well, but but it's it's catching up i think that sorry to segue slightly away from yeah, our advocacy fine. work but that's an interesting point and do you mind if i spend a couple of seconds yeah on that? Do it. so so polite so polite <laughs> is would you mind of course it's, not, it's because i was beaten at school so. <laughs> I mean, can't can't beat a good caning next to the cricket pitch <laughs> <laughs> definitely the poshest guess we've ever had definitely the poshest <laughs> guess we've ever had um so on on payments i think uh, Mark Morton at Skilling Mining is interesting on this. He he says a lot of the advocacy work he now does focuses on the commercial benefits. And I think that's a brilliant idea. Like I said earlier, technology is adopted when it's useful. There's a reason you don't see cars with square wheels. But when Bitcoin becomes obviously useful for people, it will be adopted. So one of the things I wanted to tell about was how absolutely absurd the current payment system is. So, Peter, you go into Costa... And you've got you've got a bank card. You tap your bank card on the point of sale terminal, pay for your coffee, and then you leave. To you, that is a nice, simple process. Mm-hmm. What happens behind the scenes is an absolute insanity, sausage factory yeah, yeah. of different rents. So ordinarily you've got a what you've got there is a four-party transaction. So you have yourself as the customer, you have Costa as the merchant. And then in between the merchant and the money actually getting to the merchant, you have an acquirer. Um, so the, these are terms used in the payment industries. You have acquirer and an issuer. And then you have the, the scheme rules, which are Visa, MasterCard, Amex are the, are the most well-known. So you've left, the, you've left Costa quite happy with your grande latte. And then there's, there's an obsessive sequence of messaging that is happening. So there are two things happening. There is, there is messaging and then there's transfer of value. So the point of sale terminal has frantically messaged your acquirer and the acquirer has then messaged the issuer, which is the bank where you, let's say you use your Barclay card uh, issued by Visa. And then the issuer frantically sends messages back <coughs> to the point of sale terminal saying, actually, yes, Peter's got enough money in his account to pay for his coffee. Uh, it's okay, you can authorize that transaction. It's authorized, you leave, you've got your coffee, everything fine. Every single point and person on that chain is taking some money away from the merchant who sold you that coffee. So Visa and MasterCard's fees range between 1.5 and 3.5%, I think, now. Mm-hmm. Amex's are even higher. And the acquirer gets a fee, the issuer of the card gets a fee. Um, and the settlement, the actual money, doesn't transfer for some time later, in some cases, days. And then if you contrast that with a lightning transaction, there's two parties possibly three, because the node runner might take one or two sats. In a lightning transaction, the money moves from you, Peter, to Costa, completely seamlessly, instantaneous, final settlement, almost for free. Yeah, a little fee taken by the miner. Yeah, one or two. I, I, I sat my, my, um, my lightning node payments were one, one sat, I would charge. <laughs> it's obscenely cheap to do. It makes the entire... Process. I mean, if the currency, if the Bitcoin currency was stable, it would be the best 
payment system in the world. Yeah. Well, it is the best payment system in the world, but like instability of currency presents does present issues. We can't yeah. avoid that, but. that. That's true. But you know, volatility is a price of being early. Yeah, and it's, do you know what? I um I uh, was using CoinCon Coin Corner this morning because I somebody wanted to buy a ticket for our event, and I had to. Uh, they wanted to pay in Bitcoin, and I didn't have. Um, I could have done it to a wallet, but I just wanted to have a proper transaction set up. Mm. So I phoned up Danny. I was like, he sent me something up quick. So I did it all, and then Bosh Bosh is done. They nice. Bitcoin. Um, I've I've got a obviously got a Bolt card. Yep. And have the, you got a Real Bedford Bolt card? I haven't actually. We've I, got some here. Do you want one? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I'll I'll, I'll pay you for them. So. You can have it for free. So generous. Thank you. <laughs> I'm curious. Why did you need to speak to Danny for that? Because I need the account set up. They still got to set up the KYC. To receive payment? Then? No, no, no. To set up, to get an account so you can create the invoice. Oh, I see. Yeah. So they still have to do the KYC stuff. But um, but yeah, I, I mean, I could have just sent somebody my wallet. But what's happening, I'm sending them an invoice. Yeah. And at the time they choose to pay the invoice, then the uh, the value is it that the, the amount of sats they have to send is done at the time they go to pay. Whereas if I send them like, oh, here's an address, you need to send me this many sats. Yeah. It just it has a proper process to it. How much time have we got left? Just as long as you're on. Oh, yeah. well, happy days. Um, so, may, I mean, I think may, maybe to sort of wrap up the, back, slightly backtracking to the, the advocacy point, the, the third bucket that we wanted to focus on was next generation and, and education of like young younger people. I yep. mean, I'm slowly admitting that I'm no longer the uh, the youngest person in the room, so to speak. Um, and <laughs> Papa Smurf just put his hand up. Danny's the youngest person in the room. I mean, you started the conversation talking about ET. You can't be the youngest person. In the room. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'll admit, I'll admit that. Um, and so we we're leveraging some of what the Bitcoin Collective team did in the past, uh-huh. and looking to ensure that we leverage as much of the previous materials. And you know, there's a hell of a lot of good stuff out there. Um, you know the Nakamoto Institute, the Satoshi yep. Action Fund. Yeah, um, we would look to ensure, and you know, the Looking Glass stuff that's being done by by uh, by Greg at the moment. Have you got a name for it? Our, our, this this may surprise you, but it's called Bitcoin Policy UK. That's fucking brilliant. I know it took <laughs> us a long time to come up with that name. Uh, do you have a relationship with the Bitcoin Policy Institute? Only incidentally, so Margot has been working with our environmental team. You should definitely talk um, to David Zell. Just have we a should do. Uh, and how, how much time has my brother spent talking to you? So I've been messaging with your brother in quite some detail, and then we had a really nice call uh, about a month ago. I can imagine he would want to help. He, he, I mean, initially we went. So a lot of this started after October when we were speaking to the Bitcoin Collective team. Yeah. I reached out to, to Neil. Um, obviously, great to meet you in Edinburgh as well. Um, Initially, I thought Neil might be keen to to sort of spearhead it, but if we if he's able to stay and add advice and 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 guidance and, and wisdom, so that'd be yeah, he's helpful. definitely more on the he, he, yeah. I, I think he'd like to be involved somehow, and he he's brilliant. He's a resource. Use him. Okay, I mean, so and like syncopating as much as we possibly can. The policy team are going to be doing a lot of written work. Um, I've, I say to my wife a lot of the time, I want to live in a world where Bitcoin is dull, where no one knows what they what they're paying with, and she says, well, "You've already achieved that." For me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, she cut it right. Yeah, yeah. We think exciting. <laughs> Everyone else thinks we're fucking nerds. Yes, I, I'm happy to be in it. The reason I got involved in Bitcoin first was because I used to like building computers. Right. 
I'm 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 a massive nerd. I'm very happy to be a nerd. Well, listen, you have. Did you finish on that point? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, yeah. look, you have our full support. Anything you need, you have my number, you have Danny's number. Probably best to go through Danny. You tell us. I mean, the Bitcoin Policy Institute guys have been on our show a lot. We've had Margo. We've had Matthew Pines. We've had Zell on multiple times. We've had Troy. Like, we think these people are brilliant. They're at the forefront of ideas with regards to where Bitcoin should go. And they have our full support and you have our full support. So anything you need, just stay in touch. And so, if you come to the football on Monday, regular Jason might be there. Can't Ooh. come. Uh, this flying. Oh, uh, you're literally flying on one game and returning on oh, the other so, game and so. missing the event. Well, look, I'm very grateful for the offer <laughs> support. I feel I owe you more whiskey after this. No, this would be great, but I'm a little bit tipsy. Um, <laughs> one o'clock. Well, we could we could help there, perhaps with, by going beyond tipsy to the next level. I have to do another interview. Do you? Oh, yeah. God, I'm so sorry. Um, well, look, thank is there you. Anything, is there anything we've not covered you wish we had? Uh... I think the only, the only thing that I wanted to cover was one of the pieces of legislation which is coming. Yes. Um, so, like I say, my, my, my long-term goal is to make Bitcoin boring and to ensure that you don't need to think about what you're paying with when you're paying with Bitcoin. And in that spirit, we can talk about a little bit of legislation. So the Economic Crime and Transparency Bill is currently making its way through Parliament. For people who aren't aware of how laws are generally made in the UK, bills will start off in the House of Commons and then they'll move to the House of Lords and finally they'll get royal assent. So it's broadly analogous to the two houses in the US and then the, the president signing the bill at the end. So the uh, corporate, the um, Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Bill is currently fairly far advanced. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of provisions in there relating to seizure and freezing of crypto, crypto assets. Um... I've read all of the relevant pieces and I won't go into, the, I, I make quite a lot of notes here, but I won't, I won't go into detail here. I think the, the important takeaway for any Bitcoiner is that you should consider any sats that you have in a custodial wallet or in an exchange potentially subject to freezing or seizure. If you've committed a crime or suspected of committed a crime or just because they feel like they want to take it. Well, that's the worry. If you've committed a crime, yes. But I think you need to be prepared for all eventualities. Uh -huh. And if holding Bitcoin were to become illegal, then you have committed a crime by owning it. And that Bitcoin in your Coinbase wallet will then become subject to seizure and control. Right, okay, okay. So this, is, this I think, ties into our, our third limb of the Bitcoin Policy UK efforts, which is we want to try and educate people on best practices, you know, how, how should you use your Bitcoin? How should you preserve your privacy? How, how should you conduct yourself in an environment where all of your money may be subject to surveillance, seizure, or debasement? These are things that are obvious to a lot of people who've been in the space for a long time, but, you know, if, you, if you're just buying your first Bitcoin, they may not be very obvious to you. You may think it's fine to leave it in Coinbase or Kraken. Um, the way that the... I won't go into detail on the provisions of the bill, but it's very clear that the government's going to have quite draconian powers if they suspect you of committing a crime of trying to get the exchange to freeze your account or confiscating um, hardware or software that they find in your home and appropriating the Bitcoin out of those wallets. Right, okay. So just as a general piece of... Uh, Gigi refers to this as hygiene. Yeah. Uh, in, ter in terms of internet hygiene, I think it's very important that we encourage the community to learn how best to use, control, and hold their Bitcoin. Not your keys. Yeah. I mean, it's Not cliche. your binary. <laughs> it's a cliche for a reason. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, this was great. This was great. Uh, 
if people want to find out more, where do you want them to go right now? So our website should be live by the time the show goes out. Okay. That's bitcoinpolicy.uk. Okay. Uh, Twitter handle is easy as well. That's um, uh, bitcoinpolicyuk. And same on Instagram as well. We will have a Nostra. Um, we'll put our NPUB in our, in our Twitter. Great. Um, I don't tweet very much, I'm relatively, but I'm at Freddie New. I either shitpost or I post about Bitcoin, so take your pick. Well, listen, it's, this has been great. Anything we can do to help, you let us know. Uh, I've really enjoyed this, and I think we should probably go and have a game of croquet. I would, <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> On the lawn. On the lawn. It's a beautiful... Oh, maybe, maybe the last thing to say is, if um, we, we don't have it quite set up yet, but we'll put our Giza Fund... Uh, into, um, onto our episode. Maybe I can send it to you for the show notes yeah, as well. Yeah, send it over. All awesome. right, Freddie. Love this, man. Thank I've you. I've loved it as well. Thanks so much for having me on. It's Thanks, been brilliant. Freddie. Brilliant. We'll do this again soon. I hope so. Thank you. All right. How good was that? I told you it was a mad story. Also, I told you it was posh. Definitely the poshest show we've ever made. Now, listen, I only met Freddie briefly before up in Edinburgh, so it was great to finally get to meet him. And listen, look, we can always get the Michael Saylors and the Jeff Booths on the shows, the Lynn Aldens get really good numbers, but I think this podcast has an important role in bringing new people in and doing important things. So let's support Freddie, let's back him. You know, we need this work that BPI are doing out in the US. We need similar work being done here. So I'm going to support him. All his plans for Bitcoin Policy UK are very important, and anything Freddie needs, he can reach out to me. Now, if you've got a question about this, anything else, you can drop me an email. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Next time I see you, I will be in Miami.